0: Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O V N I O. Time for the podcast.
1: All
0: right. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co host and friend Julio. Uh, Julio, welcome to Trump's America, and uh, how are you doing today, sir?
1: We're not in Trump's America yet, Alex. We have a few more what weeks, maybe a couple Six months. Six weeks, I think. Or seven so. weeks. Uh, in keeping with the tone of how things have gone uh, with this election, Trump gets inaugurated, inaugurated uh, on my birthday. So Wonderful. <laughs> yes. So we have an
0: excuse to get (laughs) shit-faced.
1: Yes, Eddie was saying, hey, are you going to have like an inauguration party or would that be in poor taste? I was like, (laughs) ask me a week before and then we'll decide because right now, I don't feel like partying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we are back again and we are here for the first of a four-part series and Julio, this was kind of your brainchild here. We're tackling the world of showbiz. Um, Walk us through what we can expect over the next four episodes.
1: Uh, Well, we can expect pack the highs and lows of show business, Hollywood, Broadway. Uh, it kind of... I wish I could tell you how it started because I don't remember. But I just know that at some point I was i was going through movies that we could potentially do. And I'm sure it had some to do with Entourage being on HBO a lot Uh Well, it's exactly recently. like
0: when we got to the end of Valley of the Dolls, it was like, why did we do this? And you were like, I don't know, Alex. You just said, let's do it. So. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I know that the last part of the of the little run I I had to like search for a movie. But I knew I I know I've been wanting to do a Woody Allen movie for a long time and uh Bullets of Broadway is, is one of the of his highest rated ones. And then I knew that uh the entourage movie, you know, it was on a lot and I was like it'd be so much fun to do. So then I was like okay, so let's find the counterparts to that. And uh looking up I was like the movie that we're doing today, the player, mm-hmm. it's at ninety eight percent in Run Tomatoes. Towering. It's a terrible movie with a really high score, so it's perfect.
0: Cynical movie.
1: Yes. So uh, we start with the player today, then we do the flip side, which is the Entourage movie, a great movie with a really low score. And then we go, move, move over to Broadway, where we see Bullets Over Broadway, which is, I think, at 93 or 94% in Rotten Tomatoes, uh, one of Woody Allen's worst movies, but apparently very well received. Uh, and then we close with uh, the Michael Douglas movie based on a Broadway show called A Chorus Line. Uh, it's a musical, Alex, so brace yourself.
0: Oh, wonderful. Mike Douglas in a musical?
1: <laughs> yes. He does not sing, though, If I, from what I recall. He is, uh, Bullshit. He is the director. Okay. Um, and yeah, and, and we had this sort of prequel with Valley of the Dolls and That Thing You Do. You know, I think that we had ourselves a little warm-up on how show business can destroy people's lives. Yeah. We had a reprieve with A, a Good Day to Their Heart just to remind ourselves that America always triumphs in the end. And, uh, <laughs> and we're back to it.
0: Uh, so, yeah, this here for episode number 36 with The Player, we go back to 1992 for the Robert Altman, I guess, classic. He was nominated, I believe he won for Best Director for the Academy Award that year.
1: I mean, we just watched the Criterion edition yeah. of the movie so i guess some people hold it in uh in has, high regard yeah uh
0: but yeah the player uh, again 1992 based on the novel by michael tolkien from four years prior 1988 um, the story of griffin mill played by tim robbins who is a not likable man yeah.
1: babyface tim robbins like i told you when we we're watching the movie <laughs> tall
0: brad garrett-esque tim robbins <laughs> yes.
1: Way, way uh, far from his uh, Green Lantern years.
0: Yeah, the the hair was jet black at this point <laughs> and slicked back. Um, but the player kind of gets right into it with a long establishing shot. The opening shot of this film is close to eight minutes long and is just filled with unnecessary fluff, and does it wastes our time.
1: Unnecessary fluff should be the tagline for the movie, uh, and taglines play a very important role in the storytelling here. Absolutely. It's every time that Altman is afraid that you may have not gotten the joke, he cuts to a tagline that mm-hmm. underlines whatever joke he was making. Uh, but here, yes, there is. it's eight minutes of just... Uh not even it's a not just the in the, the line. Right. You know, it's just like, oh, what is it like in a Hollywood lot? And then you just go around and you see people talking about movies and talking about pitches and whatever. But the moment that I was like, Okay, we're in trouble is when maybe two minutes in or so you have a conversation with two, two executives or whatever where they're talking about long tracking shots like Mm -hmm. the one they're in they talk about touch of evil or something else and how like nobody does that anymore uh because now it's like the mtv culture is like cut 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 you don't Mm -hmm. stay with single shots anymore it's basically altman just not even five minutes into his movie congratulating himself for how clever he is (laughs) and how. listen i'm bringing the hollywood interest industry back to basics i'm gonna make things good and this let's talk about my opening shot and, we'll go, and they do it twice. Like You see those two talking about it, and then you go on to see other things. And then towards the end, it's like one of the guys is talking to someone else now about mm. the tracking shots, uh, and I think he brings up Touch of Evil again.
0: One of those things you see is a young Gina Gershon. Yes. And, and you also see a pre-hairplugs Jeremy Piven.
1: Jeremy Piven, which would be our link to the entourage movie later on (laughs) i told you while we're watching it that i i and i will hold myself to this i will not bring up the entourage movie anymore uh during this this episode but i will say it here now that it's almost like the mirror image of the player (laughs) and in the fact that jeremy piven is on both it is mind-blowing because i didn't remember that he was in it
0: yeah this has been around the time he uh was like the version of George on the sitcom Jerry on Seinfeld.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, so. that is uh, that's what, yeah. It's not it's not uh, Jeremy Piven. It's not the it, good Jeremy Piven. You know, you know how people you know you refer to people as being past their prime. Mm. There's Jeremy Piven before his prime, <laughs> before he was past his prime. <laughs> yes. Uh,
0: so Tim Robbins is dating Bonnie Shero played by Cynthia uh, Cynthia Stevenson. Um, just another employee there on the lot. Uh, basically Tim Robbins, character is, he is the, um, the dam. He allows the screenplays to get in and get out. You can tell just from the first shot of him, he's the guy that people, uh, screenwriters, aspiring screenwriters wait for around the clock just to try to get a moment with.
1: Yeah. They go and they pitch him movies and he's constantly interrupting them and just saying, Oh, so like this and like this comparing he is everything that people, uh, criticized about hollywood in the sense that oh well hollywood will reduce everything to just uh, uh, uh a comparison to a different movie that they already made and that's what he does that's his job he'll be like oh so you're talking this is like pretty woman meets jaws and
0: he's and- even he even uh here before not to get ahead of ourselves but the classic problem with today his first instinct is to remake something <laughs> yes. is, yeah okay well, we'll just remake this now um but he is, you know, the big man on campus. He He's the quarterback of the football team. But there's the new kid in town, Larry Levy, played by Peter Gallagher, who is basically threatening to take his spot. And, you know, after we waste our time with the establishing shots, we get down to the meat and potatoes of it. And Griffin Mill, Tim Robbins, is just a man who is incredibly insecure.
1: Yes, he uh Behind those uh, baby blue eyes and that baby face, there's a man that maybe because he works in Hollywood, he he feels threatened by everything. Uh, and of course, when a literal threat occurs, uh, he just comes undone. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, before we actually get into the threat, I mean, I guess he, the, he gets his first postcard or whatever pretty early on. And then we find out that he's been getting them for a while because he opens a mm-hmm. drawer and uh, finds you know he has a lot of them but uh i so, wanted to mention this because you mentioned peter Gallagher, and it reminded me that when we first saw him on the screen i was not sure if that was peter Gallagher playing himself or if he was a character <laughs> and that's a problem that you have throughout the movie because there's so many cameos. It's like Robert Altman cashed in every favor he had to have every actor he's ever worked with or every actor has ever auditioned for him uh, to show up and be in the background, show up for like a second. And uh, and so then you don't know if that's John Cusack playing like a character that's going to come back later or if it's John Cusack just showing up to you know be John Cusack. And the only way that you know is when somebody finally calls him by their name.
0: With this remastered Criterion Collection, I was actually expecting like – Bradley Cooper to be superimposed into it just for an appearance. Um, But yes, I I mentioned the threat of Larry Levy because Griffin is ignoring the actual threat in front of him. He's been getting postcards, basically threatening his life. um, Even with Humphrey Bogart pointing a gun at him, which I thought was pretty fantastic. But he, if if
1: that had been the only like cute movie reference in in this film, then that would have been great. But the problem is that it was every one of five like minutes. exactly every five minutes. There's like a cutaway to a poster or a tagline, or somebody makes some sort of witty in quotation marks comment about a movie that reflects what's going on in the story at the time, and it just it it gets old really fast. So Griffin Mill at
0: this point is just he's more concerned about his. Uh, financial stake in his job than his well-being, because these postcards are threats on his life. He continues to receive them. Um, and in this sea of cameos, it's hard to piece together what the story actually is, but what we were able to make out from it is that you know it was about these threats on his life. They have that lunch scene that you were mentioning that's just nothing is achieved, but there's, you know, seven different Hollywood stars that, you know, we just get to see for 30 they seconds. Just,
1: yeah, they just come by and either they say hi to Griffin or Griffin says hi to them or somebody in the background says hi to them. Uh, and I
0: call it bullshit. When, when Angelica Houston and John Cusack have a, a meal together?
1: Well, uh, I will, because I thought the same thing. I'm like, why is this? And then I remember they're in a movie together. Mm-hmm. Uh I don't know. It would be amazing if that movie happened because they met in this in the player. Because it's I want to say well, it's our late eighties or, or mid nineties. Called uh, "Fuck the Grifters." Young Annette Benning is in it, and she is fantastic. Uh, John Cusack and Angelica Houston—they're like mother and son, and they're con artists. Okay. And then they they meet Annette. I Bening. thought you were going to
0: tell me they were like. A- quirky romantic comedy or something like that well
1: there is some sexual tension between them towards the end so it's it's really it's a really fucked up movie
0: (laughs) okay so moving along here um at this point griffin gets back to his office and there's basically a strip of postcards together and this one flat out it's not anything cute it says i'm going to kill you it's the sideshow bob type letter that he receives in the mail
1: does it say i'm going to kill you in the name of all writers
0: yes that's right (laughs) it's a long strip and he looks at it kind of like the centerfold of a playboy and then he turns it over to see he's going to get killed whoa so he starts researching through his many ledgers and documents you know what writer this could have been he he tries to frame it up by the time period right
1: uh yeah i'm I'm trying to remember like there's a oh yeah because he he has that scene where he's in the in the hot tub or whatever with his girlfriend Mm -hmm. and uh and he's trying to tell her – He's probably she's the one that reads the scripts, right? At some point, it's she's like the story editor and whenever he's like, oh, she read your script, she, she thinks it's great. So he tells her, hey, I, somebody pitched me this and it's like – he gives her like a, a very – like a thinly veiled account of what's going on with him. Mm-hmm. It's like this accountant is getting like these threatening letters. How long until the person that's writing the letters becomes actually – uh dangerous like he's asking her like she knows like she's a psychologist or something <laughs> and she's like oh i would say six months and so i think that he uses that to like go back in the ledger, back like long. up to six months and it's like who did i piss off six months ago
0: yeah i forgot about that scene uh, the main character of the movie that we're supposed to have sympathy for you know has his hot <laughs> girlfriend naked in a hot tub that is at his house reading scripts to him yes that he can just yeah. brush aside But what he's able to deduce in his research, he does believe it's a writer by the name of David Kahane that has been putting this thread out on him, Um, basically, and then looks in his ledgers, and also I think he consults public record, the Yellow Pages, tracks down where Kahane lives, um, gives him a call. He's not there, but his girlfriend, uh, June Goodman's daughter?
1: I mean, one of the often repeated gags in the movie is that nobody knows how to pronounce her last name. Goodman's daughter.
0: <laughs> the daughter of Goodman? The daughter of Goodman. John Goodman? he's not in this movie.
1: <laughs> he's the
0: only person that's not. Yeah,
1: he's the one person. It's like, hey, I'm sick, but I'll send my daughter. Uh,
0: but uh, Greta Scasche um, plays June, and she answers the phone and basically you know, says, oh, he's not here. He is in Pasadena screening a film. But this is easily the creepiest scene of the entire film because... Tim Robbins goes to his home and is just kind of watching her as they talk on the phone. Right. The
1: entire time they're talking on the phone, she doesn't know that he's outside just watching her through the windows. And uh, I I think that's a good uh, point as any to talk about Tim Robbins' performance because there is – I think that this scene in particular, that's when I I saw him strain. I think that that's when I show his limitations. One thing to to play a small role in a movie like Green Lantern Mm -hmm. where he gets to shine – maybe because he's only there for like five or 10 minutes. But when you have the whole movie, when you have to carry the whole movie, he's the one constant in the movie. You know, you have everybody else is just like cameos. They come in here for five minutes say say zinger. And then they move on, but he's here and he has to play so many different parts. And here he's supposed to be creepy. And he is creepy because the situation of somebody like some oh, t- yeah. really tall dude watching a defenseless woman, <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> completely unaware when they're on the phone. Uh, that is creepy, but the performance itself, I, I just Tim Robbins' face. That's just not, you He's know, lifeless. The, <laughs> yeah. I think that you needed. Can you imagine like that same scene, but you replace him with with an actual actor? I'm not gonna say Josh Gad because that would be too easy, but but let's say even Bradley Cooper, who's had you Ethan Embry, we love him, we hate him. Well, Ethan Embry would not stand for this kind of uh, screenwriting. <laughs>
0: Ethan Embry would be the uh, Fred Ward character, which we would get right. to later. Right. Yes,
1: yes. We'll get to Fred Ward. But yeah, I, I, I think that Tim Robbins doesn't have what it takes to, to carry a movie uh, the way that the player and Altman needed him to. I mean, the movie has many flaws, but one of them is just that there is a reason why Tim Robbins really doesn't – he's not like – he doesn't open a movie these days. Yeah. You know, he's he's uh, the bad guy's dad in Green Lantern, or he'll be... Or a
0: random uh, cameo in Anchorman.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, but he's not... He's he's just too tall, too lanky. Too, just. And in this case, I'm sorry, but it was just how young he looks. It's distracting. <laughs> it, it looks just like a man-child watching through the window. So actually, even though it's supposed to be creepy, I was pretty sure that Greta... What's her name? He, she could have kicked his ass.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was expecting like a Scream 1 type scenario with Drew Barrymore because he was like literally four feet away from her outside the window, (laughs) but she just didn't even recognize it. I don't know. Call it hubris. Call it what you will. Uh, But she does explain that David is away screening um, a a film out in Pasadena. So Griffin's going to make his way out there to meet up with David, I guess, under the intention he's going to try to convince him to be his friend so he doesn't keep threatening to kill him anymore.
1: Yeah, David is watching The Bicycle Thief, which is one of... There's, there's two kinds of references in this movie. They're The really artsy pretentious references mm-hmm. which come from the screenwriters and from uh, from this girl who is a painter mm-hmm. right and whenever they talk they're like dropping like really artsy names and of course he goes to see like a black and white Italian movie uh, that there's like
0: four people in the theater for
1: right exactly and then the other kind of references are the ones that you see in the in, in Hollywood proper all the executives which are talking about like they're dropping names like Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis and talking about you know the crass the popular yeah yeah, so uh, in in both instances, there. Uh, I mean, it's kind of I, I'm gonna call it an accidental stroke of genius, which is that because I think that Altman is trying to criticize Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? And yet, even with with Tim Robbins' poor performance, and even through even though he's an asshole, he's depicted as an asshole. We still kind of root for him, and that's because the pretentious people <laughs> are even worse. <laughs> And and I think that Alden was trying to make us actually care for the pretentious people because they're pretentious. It just, it, it's really hard to do. So Griffin does
0: make it to the theater out in Pasadena. He is such an asshole that he can't remember what David looks like. He mistakes him, but he finally does land on him. Uh, I mean he's he had
1: a pretty good guess cuz he goes for the guy with the glasses and ponytail. That's right. <laughs> so, so I'm like, yeah, if I was going to go for a pretentious writer <laughs>
0: for a screenwriter in the early 90s that's probably what I'd look for. Uh but he does finally figure out who David Kahane is and it's played by uh and he is played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Um and basically he's just trying to butter up to him right away, you know, just talking about how good of a writer he is, how he wants to help him remake The Bicycle Thief the movie. Um and you know, he wants to make a deal with them, so they're going to go out for some drinks and talk things over.
1: Yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio definitely not playing himself. Because like I told you after I saw the credits, I I did not recognize him. He's the one person I didn't recognize in the movie.
0: I think you're just over... Your eyes were all fucked up from the shining bright stars that are throughout the entire movie. That's true. You weren't able to see straight. Um, But the deal goes awry. David, you know, remembers Griffin and just how big of a fucking prick he was to him. Um, Griffin can't even remember the script that he pitched to him. So, you know... David isn't in the wrong here and you know calling him an asshole and basically calling him out for all his bullshit and what's wrong with the the Hollywood system.
1: Yeah, but it's also the movie itself it's uh it's just so full of stereotypes because of course David is the stereotypical writer. Oh, yeah. crazy kind of hair. Crazy glasses. hair, glasses, unkempt, disgruntled. And of course they go to the stereotypical Japanese karaoke place to have their conversation where uh, and it's sad because Alma can't even get the karaoke stereotype right the mm-hmm. trope when you go to a karaoke place is that you go to see like the crazy performances where somebody's gonna you know that's the joke yeah what's his name in hangover three that's like your favorite singer hangover three isn't he isn't it uh ken young yeah ken young like yeah. when he's singing whatever song and you're like or oh the, the end of only god forgives oh exactly yeah. you know if you're gonna have uh, a karaoke scene then it has to be all over the top that's the only reason we're there but here you have just these men that are barely singing well well tim robbins and uh off we are, are speaking so it's like what's the point why would you set it there mm-hmm. I mean there is like some reference about the fact that the story that he pitched had to do with uh, him going to Japan yeah his his Japan year as an exchange student but you could have done that at any bar
0: yeah and that doesn't really even lead anywhere so the, right yeah, so it's delusion. just it
1: almost feels like like Altman didn't even fully comprehend the the system that he was making fun of
0: <laughs> and, yeah and uh, Ken Hyng deadpan singing hurt by Johnny cash is wonderful. Hangover three, I guess. Griffin tries to follow him out to his car. David is in, uh, he's drunk. He's angry. He he wants nothing to do with it. Um, he tries to make a deal with him, but he ends up storming away. He tries to take his phone. Um, and he mockingly calls the studio because he knows his job, his job's in jeopardy because of Levy.
1: Yeah. He, he mock calls Levy and, uh, pretends that he's talking to him and just basically threatens, uh, uh, Tim Robbins to just tell people that on his time off, he's just going to parking lots to try to make deals with, with writers. Uh, and Robbins, a couple of times he keeps, he accuses him or, or just basically brings up the postcards. And he's like, listen, I just want you to stop with the postcards. Mm-hmm. And Donofrio very conveniently doesn't like deny or confirm <laughs> that he has been sending them now because we, the viewers we've seen movies before. We know that that probably means that that he's not the guy. <laughs>
0: It would have been great if he was just like, what the hell are you talking about? Right,
1: right. But no, God forbid that he actually would like say something that would streamline things in the movie so that people would behave like rational persons.
0: So eventually this leads to a drunk scuffle. Um, Griffin's on his way back to his car. David's on the side of a building taking a piss. They get into a scuffle. Uh, he follows David back to his car and basically you know, just quit it with the postcards. Um, it leads to a violent altercation as David pushes him over a curb. He comes down to check on Mill to make sure he's okay. Um, and Griffin, at this point, you know, throws him up against the wall, slams his head into the concrete several times and leaves him into a, It leaves him in a shallow puddle of water to literally drown to death.
1: This is the the high point of the movie, in my opinion, the only good scene in the movie because, it takes a turn fast. yes, and you're like, holy shit. okay, now we're in business. I will forgive all the bullshit. For the past 45 minutes, all the pointless cameos, all the pointless shop talk. And because now we just saw this guy kill another human being, and now we're going to deal with the repercussions of that. There is absolutely no way. Right. There is no way that we will go back to the celebrity cameos (laughs) and the talk about (laughs) movies. (laughs) Right. But no, that's exactly what the movie does. Mm -hmm.
0: So he kills him. He realizes he kills him, and then he realizes he has to cover his tracks. So, what he does is basically stages a robbery gone awry scene. He takes all the cash out of his wallet, takes his watch, shatters his car window out, um, you know, tries to cover his tracks fairly well. And then he just goes about his business back to work the next day.
1: Yeah, the next day he has a. There's like some sort of executive meeting where people are once again talking about movies because that's all that they talk about in this. The player is a movie about people talking about movies. That's it. That's yeah. all that happens. <laughs> they're pitching movies. They're talking about movies that are in production or they're criticizing movies that have already happened. but that that's that's all that's happening. And every now and then you cut to like the pretentious painter and she's talking about painting,
0: and you can't really tell if it's guilt over the fact that he just murdered a man in cold blood or if it's just more of anxiety and concern over his job that's become uh, Griffin Mill is that he's just sitting there, you know, cold sweats pain behind the eyes but what we've come to believe about this man so far it probably just has to do with himself he's not too concerned about the fact that he killed someone
1: yeah once again we go back to tim robbins maybe not being able to reach the level of performing that that was needed here because he just looks so plastic that it's hard i mean maybe that was old man's master plan i will cast an actor that doesn't really emote that much because that's how i feel about about Hollywood and about the system, and it's just all these soulless mannequins that that you know just are in charge of the production. But but as an audience, you need to be engaged, and it's hard to be engaged when Tim Robbins himself doesn't seem to. Be, the camera has to strain to give him like any sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. You know how many close-ups are of like of his eyes, and I think that they just focus on his eyes because the rest Slow of his face zoom-ins. doesn't. Yeah, it's like well, we need to do something with the camera because the actor himself is not bringing it. So, yeah, it's that scene. And then, well, there's several later on where I think that there's a lot of visual audiovisual tricks just to enhance uh, his performance because the performance itself was not bringing it.
0: So Fred Ward's on the case. He knows what's going on. And this is similar to the scene in Pulp Fiction when they call the wolf. Uh, (laughs) The cleaner, Fred Ward, plays Walter Stuckle. He comes in. He basically says to him without saying, I know you killed him. So we need to cover our tracks now. And basically says, "Okay, did you go there with the intent to kill him?" And basically just tells him, "Hey, we have to have all these bases covered." Um, I'm what was his position with the studio? Why is he so concerned with protecting Tim Robbins?
1: I I think he's in charge of security. He's, I think he was like studio security or studio safety or something. I'm Fred Ward.
0: (laughs) I'm usually a character actor, but now I'm playing (laughs) a tough guy. Um, so he tells him, you know, you were there last night. You were the last person seen with him. Uh, and he's wound up dead. Right, so.
1: because even, I mean, when you think about it, he didn't really cover his tracks at all. He left breadcrumbs all over the place because he talked to his, uh, he talked to the guy's girlfriend mm-hmm. on the phone, and then he was seen in two different public spaces with him. He was, you know, because he talked to him at the movie and he talked to him at the karaoke bar. So there's plenty of witnesses everywhere. The only thing that he locked out is that nobody saw him kill him. But other than that, mm-hmm. you, you know, there's, just like smashing the window and, and taking the guy's yeah, money. Glass had gonna... his fingerprints on it. That too. So it was just uh, – I, I can't believe that Tim Robbins was surprised that, that Fred Ward and the police already had him like on the list of people to call. Already on the trail.
0: Yep. We go to the Kahane funeral. Uh, this is basically his writer buddies are talking about him. But this is inappropriately enough where the spark uh, is then again ignited <laughs> between June and Griffin. <laughs> Uh But you
1: know, you can't blame her because the guy doing the eulogy comes across as such an ass hat. Like he, he's talking about how like, well, every time we sell a script now, it'll be for, uh, for what's the name? David Kahane. For David. For David. It'll be for David. And, uh, And then he reads like the first couple pages, I guess, of the script that he was working on. And it's so pretentious. And you're like, why would you want to stick with this crowd when you have tall, baby-faced Tim Robbins (laughs) (laughs) staring at you in the background? I mean, you can't can't blame June for for just trying to – what it's like on the other side of the tracks.
0: But she basically explains, I have no interest in mourning his death. Uh, Take me away, Tim Robbins. Take me away.
1: They'll be the first of many mixed signals that she sends to him.
0: During the funeral, we get a really creepy Lyle Lovett just kind of wandering the premises. And this isn't explained for about another hour of the film.
1: They milk the Lyle Lovett cameo. A lot. Because, I mean, it's not like he's an integral part of the movie. No. <laughs> you could remove I Love It from this movie and it would be fine. Uh, Had
0: um, he saved the day, it would have been okay.
1: Right. But, but no, he's just, literally, he's just there to be another red herring where you think he that, He okay, is the <laughs> Iceman. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's there, much like with the movie posters and the taglines and whatever, the movie quotes, uh, the movie cuts to him every now and then, just kind of like, to remind you that he's there and make you think that maybe he's the killer. Uh but oh, because Griffin knows by now that he's not the killer, right? Because he's gotten like another postcard or yes. something. Yeah. So so he knows that on top of killing a man, he killed the wrong man.
0: Yeah, he got a postcard faxed to him when he was speaking with the cleaner Fred Ward in his office that said, you know, surprise or something along those lines. Um but yeah, as we mentioned, between Griffin and June, the chemistry is a-bloomin'. It doesn't really seem like they have much in common. They're just two sociopaths that are really attracted to each other.
1: Yes, and uh, but two dumb sociopaths, especially especially uh, a Griffin. Because there's how is it that Tim Robbins did not realize that this incriminates him even more? Mm-hmm. He already knows that the cops are kind of sniffing around because... There are several people that put him in the scene, and everybody assumes that he's the last person to see David before he died. And now he starts dating. He just goes (laughs) over
0: to her house and is just letting her take pictures of him in her home. (laughs) Yes. Red flag 101. Listen to the Elizabethtown episode. At least she has a literal camera, though. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then he takes one of her.
0: That's right. Oh, and he doesn't even close his other eye to focus. (laughs) No. It's creepy as fuck. Uh, He returns back to his office, and we are blessed with the presence of Whoopi Goldberg, Detective Avery, who is there to do some questioning. Now, again, um, really wasn't into it at this point, but it's so rare. In the 90s, it was pretty rare. Uh, Now it's even more rare that we get a Whoopi Goldberg (laughs) acting as something that's not Whoopi Whoopi Goldberg, let alone an R-rated Whoopi Goldberg.
1: That is so weird, really, to see Whoopi Goldberg. In a movie that's full of cameos, Whoopi Goldberg is not cameoing at herself. She's actually, she has a part.
0: Yeah, she's not Buckwheat's mom, and she's not, you know, just uh, Sister Act Two. And she's saying fuck, which I don't know if I'd ever heard Whoopi Goldberg say fuck before. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, the first time we see her, she's playing with the Oscars that are on uh, Griffin's desk. And uh, and it made me think, okay, has she won an Oscar by then? And then I remember, oh, yeah, she did, because somebody mentions Ghost. Mm-hmm. earlier in the movie. It's yeah. one of the many movies that get name-dropped. So this is Oscar-winning uh, Whoopi Goldberg just uh, hanging out, doing some acting. She's she's on it,
0: though. She knows basically before she even speaks with Griffin, she knows that he did it.
1: There, there are two very strong characters in this movie. They're both female, and they both, spoiler alert, they both get thwarted by the system by the end of the movie. <laughs> uh, one is Whoopi Goldberg. The other one is... Uh, Griffin's uh, girlfriend, the story editor, Bonnie Sharro,
0: Cynthia Stevenson.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. they're they're both smart, resourceful, and actually seem like actual good people. Mm-hmm. So uh, the movie will shit on them uh, all throughout, and not for an actual reason. I don't think that. I, I think we'll get to the message of the movie later on, but I think that Altman wasn't. I think it misfired.
0: And. During this questioning, when it starts to get a bit heated, Fred Ward, the cleaner, comes in and says, All right, that's enough, which he's not his attorney, so I don't really know how he has the...
1: (laughs) Because he's Fred Ward. (laughs) I'm Fred Ward, character actor, and I say this is enough.
0: So while Griffin is basically in a screening, they're chopping together the latest movie that they're working on. He gets noticed that uh, you know he's summoned for a dinner. I forget the character name he used.
1: Uh, it's a it's the writer of uh, Sunset Boulevard, or the writer from Sunset Boulevard, for, like the one that's the writer in the movie. That gets uh, killed? Yeah, Joe something. Joe Gillies? Uh, yeah, Joe Gillies, yeah. maybe, yeah.
0: So he, he uses that name to summon him there, and Tim Robbins here just hella overreacting. <laughs> I don't know why they do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> He's the who, most he, obvious he, murderer. Right. If he's not emoting, he's way over emoting. <laughs>
0: The covers tracks, so he shows up for dinner. Um, this is where you know we get the vindication scene of the film when the Don himself, Malcolm McDowell, comes into frame and just sons Tim Robbins' character. <laughs> Says, "If you're gonna talk shit about me, at least do it to my face. You're all the same."
1: Yeah, uh, that's okay. So let's get to what I think. Uh, what the problem with this movie is, and this movie is basically Robert Altman, who by now had made like a whole lot of movies, and we're going to make many more, mm-hmm. right? This is him biting the hand that feeds him, and it pisses me <laughs> off <laughs> because it doesn't take a stance. He's in there criticizing the studio system, making fun of movie stars, making fun of executives and whatever, and I'm like, motherfucker, who who helped you make this movie? The yeah. movie that we're watching right now is it's not like you cast an unknown to play the main character. You got Tim Robbins. It, it, you got... You, you have... Character actor Fred (laughs) Ward. You got Oscar winning Whoopi Goldberg. Mm -hmm. You got Lyle Lovett playing like a minor character. I mean, you have names all over this movie. And this movie was obviously discussed and dissected in the offices of the executives that you're mocking here. This system that you're making fun of actually made this movie possible along with all the other movies that you made. Yeah. So what are you complaining about? You have a career, you know? And for him to... Yes, it's awesome that Malcolm McDowell gets to tell... Tim Robbins, who's a prick, because he's a prick, McDowell. right? Because, Ma- but when you stop for a second and you think of Malcolm McDowell as a stand-in for Robert Altman, and just Altman putting words on that character's mouth, kind of like, like, you know, well, getting back,
0: with, uh, Burt Reynolds as well, it, like, yeah, same thing. We don't mean to gloss over all these cameos, but there's just so many that are pointless, and <laughs> yeah, and it's the he has burt reynolds just call this guy an asshole for no reason for no
1: reason he's just like oh haha it's funny because he's because he's an executive okay he's an executive but he's getting movies made mm-hmm. you know and and the entire movie is is supposed to be this giant fuck you to the studio if system. you want
0: to make a gimmick movie that's fine just look at the expendables one through seven but you know it's <laughs> with this situation it's yeah, when you're trying to say something about the Hollywood system, but your film's just a gimmick film, it's like, come exactly. on, get over yourself. Dude. Yeah,
1: I was like, okay, do you think that anybody is going to go watch this movie if it wasn't like filled with stars from top to bottom? Mm-hmm. You know, Because God knows it's not the story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so then, to be extra cute, we cut from Malcolm McDowell to Andy McDowell.
1: And they and then, because, like I said, Aldman has to underline every joke he makes, then she comments on the fact that she's not related yeah. to Malcolm McDowell. Yeah.
0: This all leads to um, a script being pitched to Griffin for a film called Habeas Corpus. Um, now, he thinks it's the screenwriters that summoned him, but actually, you know, the stalker leaves a postcard saying, you know, I told you to come alone. Um, but this le- lends credence to basically the events that are about to unfold because Griffin gives the script the thumbs up and says, you know, follow up with us tomorrow. It's about a film that. And of course, this will change because you always have to compromise your integrity in Hollywood. Um, Basically, it's about a love story where the woman dies in the end.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's about it's about it's about love, but it's also about the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's so there's these two screenwriters. uh, One of them is played by Dean Stockwell trying to steal the movie from everybody else. But it's impossible <laughs> because there's so many people that, but he tries his best. And, uh, and then the other guys, like, I guess he's British, but, uh, so they're, they're just there again, stereotypical screenwriters, just full of, of, uh, not even hubris with entitlement, you know, yeah. the, as they're pitching their story, uh, uh, the, the British guy, he's just like no stars and it has to be a sad ending. The woman has to die at the end because that's reality. That's what happens. That's life. And again, it feels like the movie he went contradicting on to itself. Is the color. <laughs> I want real sex because that's what happens. And that's I
0: want life. real snot coming out of her nose when she <laughs> cries because that's what happens. And they're gonna get it on in this restaurant.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, Robbins. Uh, yeah, Robbins tells him to like just give him a call. He, I guess, might as well discuss his master plan because even though he's, he's murder man and he's kind of like the main suspect in the police investigation.
0: Doing nothing to shield himself from the spotlight.
1: <laughs> no. Instead he decides to do like some some play some games at work where he's going to he thinks that the movie that got pitched is not good enough. Mm-hmm. But he's gonna sell it. He's gonna sell it because he knows that uh his competition, uh Larry Levy. Right. He's going to take it and then because the guy that's above them wants to get in business with levy he wants to like groom him into the next star he's gonna let levy take over the project and then when the project falls apart then levy's out and then Robbins comes in and saves the day because he yeah. knows that pitch like it has a good ending has a good first act but there's no middle and that's gonna go to shit. yeah so that's like a lot of like i i guess that's cool if that was the movie but the movie is about some guy that got killed and now <laughs> the robins <laughs> should be worried about that
0: and then to take us back to reality oh, there goes gravity uh Griffin gets back to his car. He takes off, and then he gets a fax in his car that says, Look under your raincoat, and it's a box that says, Don't open till Christmas. And
1: then, like, spoiled child, he does not wait till Christmas.
0: He opens the box, and it's a goddamn rattlesnake in his car. <laughs> and then he pulls over, and instead of just, you know, putting it in the sewer, he beats <laughs> it to death with an umbrella.
1: It's funny because it's like the two sides of Tim Robbins. Like, uh, on the side of underreacting, I thought that he didn't freak out anywhere near enough when the, when the when he saw the snake
0: he just looked at it with the big eyes right
1: he like opened his eyes really wide and i mean he's driving mm-hmm. when this is happening and he just kind of like does a little bit of crazy driving but then finds a parking spot pretty quickly
0: if, if there's a rouse i want you know tyler perry medea level reaction right. to something like this yeah
1: i wouldn't i would have gotten to an accident yeah uh but then once he's parked and he gets out of the car then he turns over to like Tim Robbins overreacting, and he grabs an umbrella.
0: <laughs> he rips his shirt off so he's down to his wife beater. <laughs>
1: yes, to show those those guns, <laughs> and then he just beats the snake to a pulp. And I don't and know if you just... noticed. I was paying attention to the credits, the end credits, and it did not say that no snakes were harmed in the making of this movie. So I think like, we actually saw an actual snake For murder. For shame. There. Cannibal
0: yep. Holocaust type shit. Come <laughs> yes. on now.
1: So in this, he says he has an,
0: a near-death experience, and he goes to Mac on June some more. Which it's like, no, you really didn't. There was a rattlesnake in the passenger floorboard of your car. You got conveniently pulled over, then you beat it to death.
1: Yeah, if the snake had survived, the snake should have gone to June's like the snake could have said, Hey, I just had the craziest night. <laughs> <laughs> some guy put me in a box. <laughs> Next thing I know, some other guy is like beating on me with a with an umbrella. Next thing I
0: know. Shawshank Redemption's beating me up. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Um yeah, or at least if he had gotten bit and he wanders in, like Woody Harrelson and Natural Born Killers, you know, <laughs> looking for the anecdote. Right,
1: but... right, and it's all, like, green.
0: No. Uh, <laughs> but he goes into June's home and basically is like, all I could think about was you, you're all that came to mind.
1: And Oh, yeah, he has the <laughs> – actually wrote it down. He has the Nicole Kidman monologue from uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Have you seen Eyes Wide Shut? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which she's just, like a... – she's sitting against the wall – Kind of like the, his eyes are just old days and he's just like going on about like what's going on in his head. And then uh, June has the, the Tom Cruise part where like, you know, every time we cut to her, she's like, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> she
0: she says, are you making love to me? And he says, yes, I want to make love to you. And she says, not yet.
1: <laughs> but and it's... Uh, Talk about mixed signals because she's painting him. Mm-hmm. He, when he comes in, all the pictures that she's taking of him, she's using them to, to paint a picture of him. And of course, because, you know, she's an artist and she's quirky and whatever, it's just all, it's really weird. I mean, you can kind of see Tim Robbins in that painting, but it's also, there's a lot of shit on that painting. Yeah. And that's like, because she's an artist and she's quirky. There's paint all over her apartment. There's unfinished paintings, or maybe they're finished. I don't know. It's hard to tell.
0: She is Natalie Portman from Garden State.
1: Exactly. That's what I was thinking, dude. That was. Like, I really like. Oh, is she gonna make like a noise that nobody ever has made before? Uh, but yeah, even her fridge has paint on it, which is like, come her on, phone. Now. her phone. Has yeah, it's like grow up. You're an adult. Your Wash boyfriend your got hands. murdered. <laughs> yeah.
0: So the plans in motion is habeas corpus is pitched to Levy. Uh, you know. Griffin's selling on, oh, this is great. And they even go down to the conversations just between the two of them. No stars? I don't know. It's a pretty dark ending. It's like, oh, it's going to be great. Basically, setting that, you know, making him to be the fool. Um, we get a black tie gala that has really no purpose in the movie other than to further the relationship between June and Griffin.
1: But also to just provide. Tim Robbins. More cameos? Well, yeah, more cameos, and also Griffin gets to, and Altman, get to just deliver the biggest slap in the face to, I guess, film. It, the most disrespectful moment in the movie is when Griffin gets up there on the podium to like, give a speech. Oh, that's speech. right. He gets on his soapbox. Yeah, and he starts talking about how movies need to be art again and whatever, and he ends up, we must never forget that movies are art. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> like, you and Robert Altman, because, you know, it's not – Okay, on one hand, it's like, okay, that's awesome that you're patting yourself on the back for making an artsy movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right? Are you are you doing what you're preaching about, Robert Altman, <laughs> through yeah. Tim Robbins? Are you bringing movies back to what they're supposed to be and what they need to be as, like, art? But does that mean that, what, is this art? Just because you threw, like, a bunch of movie stars at the background and are making yeah. all these, like, cute meta references. Is that really what movies are supposed to be? Amen. <laughs> hey,
0: World needs Friday the Thirteenth movies.
1: Yeah, it, it's just so, and also to have a character that's so uh, uh, rotten as Tim Robbins is say, by now.
0: You picked the wrong face for your movie, dude. Just killed a guy in cold blood about <laughs> exactly, forty minutes ago. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and it's not as if, again, spoiler alert, it's not like this part of a journey that ends with him getting some sort of comeuppance, and then you're like, oh, the okay, movie well, unfortunately but... does
0: not end with Malcolm McDowell beating the shit out of him
1: <laughs> at the bowling alley. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm finished. Yeah, it really does nothing to more than to establish more non likability for Griffin, and then but also yeah. Oh, because
1: also this is like right after he is contrived to uh, to send his girlfriend out of town, yeah, just so he could take June to this to this party. Like she's
0: not going to find out all her friends, right? Right?
1: It's just it's insane, and it is not. I mean, he even has a character say it later. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like yes, we know Robert Altman. Start pointing at things that we know already.
0: So after this, he sets up a date with June to basically go to Mexico for the weekend together. They're going to go.
1: Because they haven't had sex yet.
0: That's right. They're planning it on a special occasion.
1: Yeah. It's very damning of the character of June. uh, uh, And I don't think that that's intentional. But the fact that she basically sells herself out uh, because she she makes a comment about how, like, wow, now that's a date when Mm -hmm. they come back from the gala. And then Robin says, like, so can I come in? Yeah. And she's like, nope not yet <laughs> i'm like wow that's just... i need more <laughs> yeah okay well i'll take you to mexico now
0: <laughs> of course bonnie gets back from out of town and learns of all this and comes into griffin's office and it's a pretty she takes the high road
1: yeah to say the least yeah. uh but i will also say this is the one moment in the movie when i bought i completely bought tim robbins as a scumbag where i was not bothered by his performance i think he nailed you know he's being underacting or overacting but here he just hits that sweet spot in the middle when and maybe it's because he doesn't really have to do much he's just sitting on the couch his arms are like splayed well he's laying
0: down and then he does the undertaker sit up (laughs) right 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 and then he's
1: just looking at her like kind of his head's a little tilted down and he has that kind of creepy look hasn't slept in days yeah his hair is kind of falling on his face he looks like a serial killer (laughs) (laughs)
0: um and basically in no uncertain terms tells her beat the bricks sweetheart
1: yeah, she confronts him with everything she's heard, and he's like, yep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah.
1: You got that right. We're watching the same movie.
0: And then Bonnie again takes the high road and says, okay, we'll have a safe trip. <laughs> yeah. So good on her.
1: Right. You would think that, okay, well, things will turn out fine for this for this. Uh, you would decent think,
0: human being. You would think the movie would paint one female in a victorious role. but
1: Because, hey, if you were paying attention... Movies are art.
0: (laughs) So this does segue into the Pasadena Police Department calling back Griffin uh, for more questioning.
1: Yeah, we finally—if you had given up on finding out what was the deal with—I love it. they finally, you finally find out.
0: As Griffin goes to pull away the next day, um, I believe is he on the way to pick up June for their trip? No, he has one more day of work. Yeah, he has. he's He's going to work. He's going into the office. And Lyle Lovett just kind of really oddly, he just shoots his arm around the corner and shows his badge. Which, at this point, there is the scene in the restaurant earlier, you can see the badge on him. So I called bullshit on the surprise. It's
1: not a surprise for us, and and it shouldn't be a surprise for Robbins, because he knows he's being tailed by the police by he, now.
0: He's made eye contact with creepy Lyle Lovett several times. Yeah,
1: so maybe it's a surprise to Lyle Lovett. <laughs> hey!
0: But it's a... Uh, Lyle Lovett is playing Detective DeLongprey, who says, hey, we need to bring him for some questioning, and takes him down to the Pasadena uh, Police Department, sits him down with Whoopi Goldberg, uh, a.k.a. Detective Avery, and basically they just start going over more. But this is really just a grilling session. They mm-hmm. just bring him in to turn up the heat on him. Yeah.
1: Here's my theory about Lyle Lovett, now that I think about it. Because, like I said, you could take his character out, and it's not, he's not doing anything that the, the Whoopi Goldberg character wasn't doing already. Mm-hmm. Right, so I think that maybe Oscar winner Whoopi Goldberg only had like two days to shoot the movie, and they're like, "Yeah, but we need a cop tailing him for longer." So then, like, okay, we'll get Lyle Love it to do that. <laughs> and then, because then once once he, he brings him, yeah, once he brings him to the station, he's like in the background quoting freaks. He's yeah. not really doing anything. That's swatting flies. Swatting flies, yeah.
0: But the, this is just a scene that's really meant to crank up the heat on uh, Griffin, and basically, he's starting to crack. He's starting to lose it. And
1: it, you know, he started to crack because the camera keeps getting closer and closer to his face.
0: Yeah. And it turns into like a Chucky type situation where like his eyes get, start getting smaller on his head. So he looks <laughs> yes. like a little doll. Like it's very strange. That's
1: what I'm telling you. It's like Altman, like employing every trick in the book to like get something out of this actor.
0: So yeah, they basically grill him to the point where he's freaking out and says, I won't speak anymore without a lawyer. And they just keep laughing at him. And it just eventually leaves to him leaving. Cause they have no concrete evidence yet, but you can tell Whoopi's confident that they're closing down on him and they're going to be getting getting their man before too long. Um, the trip to Mexico is cut short. Uh, they get to the airport and Creepy Lyle Lovett's waiting there with two local police officers. <laughs> Basically, they're heading to the gate to wait for Griffin if he is to arrive. And Griffin just says, no, June, <laughs> we're not going to go here. We're going to go to a desert hot spring, a remote location that I Quick know. Quick on his
1: feet. The moral one of the morals of this story is like if you kill someone, just make sure you have a lot of money so you can just on the fly make plans to do something. And she
0: doesn't question it at all like have you done this before? (laughs) No. She jokingly asks, Are we hiding? But she should be a bit more concerned than she is.
1: Right. I mean, this is a guy that the cops have interrogated her about him. Mm -hmm. So she has to know that there is a chance that this guy had something to do with her husband or her boyfriend's death. Doesn't care.
0: She doesn't. In fact, Leading into to the coupe de grass. Uh, they have a nice romantic evening together and it culminates with very sweaty coitus.
1: Which is a really weird sex scene. It comes right after, once again, Altman not being subtle at all or or really caring for, for a craftier transition. But uh then Robinson explained to her what he does at work, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, Well, I got to make sure that movies have like the things that sell that make it easier to sell them, to market them. And he he starts listing all the things that I guess Altman is supposed to be criticizing in in this movie. So he's talking about violence and nudity and humor and happy endings and blah, blah. And I think the last thing he says is like sex and then cut to them having sex. In close-ups. It's just like their faces. It's like, yeah. it's the only weirdest sex scene that I've seen uh, is uh, in Meet Joe Black. Do you ever see Meet Joe Black? No. Well, Brett Pitt is supposed to be death, reincarnated, like in, in a mm-hmm. human's body. And so he's never had sex, obviously, because he's death. And he has sex with, uh, I think it's Claire Forlani in the in the movie. And so the entire thing, if I remember correctly, takes place, it, like the shot, it's just one shot and it's, on the head of the bed, so what you're seeing is Brad Pitt's on top of her, and you just see Brad Pitt's face the entire time. <laughs> so the sex scene is you see the back of her head, and you see his face, and and it's the entire sex scene like that. So when it, and you see it end, it goes like all the way, and you're like, well, <laughs> I mean, all right, <laughs> I just got a close up of uh, of uh Brad Pitt's face while he was ejaculating. <laughs> Didn't see that before. It's weird. Almost as weird as, uh, or well, a little weirder than Tim Robbins and, uh, and June having sex here. entirely. Sweaty Tim up.
0: Robbins and them just kind of rubbing faces. Yeah, um, that's it.
1: They're just rubbing faces.
0: But then he confesses that he killed David and it culminates with her saying, I love you, after he confesses to this.
1: positing in the theory, can you just admit to anything if you're good in the sack? <laughs> Is that the time to do it?
0: I voted for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this cuts to them just having a mud bath and now you can see on her face she's kind of you know, reconsidering now that the, the heat is, and we've all had that moment where in the, the height of passion things are said or done and it, it works at that particular time but then <laughs>
1: And then that person it doesn't look the same or 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 appear the same way once they're mm-hmm. just looking like an even worse serial killer because he's covered in mud, <laughs> so he looks like straight out of a, a, a like a oh, thriller. Yeah. There, you know. The, and then <laughs> the scene because yeah, she looks pretty freaked out, and he's been pretty silent. It's like the textbook like awkwardness after sex. Yes. And then
0: it starts with her like pretending like she's asleep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And then he gets a phone call. Like, they bring him the phone. And so he gets up, and you get a shot of Tim Robinson's limp penis.
0: Yeah, just completely you Tim think, Robbins dong. Yeah,
1: you, like, the nudity that you didn't get in the sex scene, you get now in the, like, post-mud scene. Yeah. And you think that the mud's going to be, like, artsy covered. Caked? No, but it <laughs> conveniently, like, falls off of him.
0: And it's just, yeah... Tim, the Shawshank flailing in the wind there. <laughs> yep. And he goes to the phone and it's his lawyer saying, you know, everything's fucked. Uh, the studio executive has gone. Levy's in, you know. But more importantly, we got this situation with Pasadena. You've been called in, you know, you're called in for a lineup and you have to be there in four hours. So shit's on. And this is basically, you know, his heart's beaten out of his chest comedically like a cartoon wolf. And he gets to the scene and, He's still got mud on his face. He looks like an absolute wreck, but he has an attorney there waiting for him, uh, a criminal defense attorney who basically is a, okay. This is what's going to happen. His if, his
1: attorney is talking to him like he's guilty. Yeah, it's uh, like
0: they're gonna identify you. I'm gonna get you out on bail. You know, and <laughs> don't don't not get in the lineup because they can arrest you then. Even though I'm sure I could get you out. Um, he goes into the lineup and. It has none of the fun of Usual Suspects. It's a very demure scene. No,
1: it's like the the worst lineup scene that you could imagine. Mm -hmm. Because there is... None of the people there are particularly interesting. It's like you have three yahoos, Tim Robbins, and then I love it. Which I had never heard of, of a cop getting on the line. I guess it's possible. The intentional red herring. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But... I mean, it seemed I would be pissed if I was a witness and the police were trying to like fuck with me by putting like an actual cop yeah. in the lineup. You know, that's that's kind of disrespectful of somebody who's potentially witnessed a crime. Uh, but it backfires on him, right? It does because
0: uh, Whoopi's convinced that this is it. We're gonna we're gonna nail the cracker, and you know, <laughs> they get him in there, and the witness swears on her mother's grave that it's number three, which turns out to be Lyle Lovett. Yep. So there goes the case. There goes Free the case. Free like
1: OJ. Yep. And you're like, "Wait, that was it?" Because, you know, Robin starts like walking away. He doesn't he, just to confirm that he's a complete dick. They're rolling out like they're coming out of the of the uh station and his lawyer who's in a wheelchair mm-hmm. gets to Paraplegic. the steps. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, there's no there's no ramp." And he just walks right He past just keeps him. walking. He doesn't help him like. And he puts you know. his sunglasses
0: on like yeah. a real yeah. asshole.
1: And then cut to like a screen that says one year later and you're like wait what yeah. one year later what happened he got away with it
0: free like oj and he gets there and what we're seeing is the finished product of habeas corpus the studio executives are screening it and the film writer definitely sold his morals and i guess we're led to believe that um griffins plan went
1: recording. i guess it worked in a way because the uh gallagher's still there so he didn't get fired. But later we find out that... Because what they Robbins did is... They, is
0: in a more prominent position.
1: Right. Yeah. Because they changed the ending, basically. Yeah. Well, no. They cast stars because they have Julia Roberts. Uh, you see, Julia Roberts is the woman that goes to... You know the the gas chamber, but Bruce Willis saves the day. Bruce Willis comes in and saves the day. So it's like two stars. You will see Susan Sarandon and Peter Falk, I think, in the background. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, so the whole like no stars thing like got thrown out of the window. And then they changed the ending, so it's a happy ending. Uh, and this oh, movie right. has
0: and because um, Tim Robbins is the executive now, right? The guy, who got yeah, the, he out. Yeah. exactly
1: it, and when. Uh, Later, when Gallier calls him, it's like they loved it, and they're like, "Thank you for the ending" or something like yeah, they yeah, liked yeah. your new ending. So he's the guy; he kind of did he's what he guy. was gonna do. Yeah, he's the guy. Uh, and this movie has many flaws, but I think that uh, we we both laughed really hard at the Bruce Willis's line at the very end that yes, closes the movie.
0: Absolutely, perfect one-liner of uh, Julie Roberts asking him what took you so long, and traffic was a bitch.
1: Yeah, As a, he's like, he's used a shotgun to blow out the the. An opening into the gas chamber so he can rescue her. And she already passed out, but he, she wakes up right away after he carries her out and they kiss.
0: This might be an ignorant question. Have they done anything together?
1: Dude. If not, that's a shame. <laughs> this is the one movie where they. But that their was the peak of both of
0: their good looks and.
1: Is... Oh, she looks, she's radiant for a woman that's going to the death chamber. <laughs> she looks beautiful, and uh, and, and Willis Dallas. still has hair. Yeah, <laughs> so this is before Die Hard three, I guess.
0: Yeah, but he still had hair in Fifth Element, or was that a, a rug?
1: Oh uh, no, that's blonde hair. I think that... Was that the Jeremy
0: Piven special he had there. <laughs> Regardless, uh, Robbins gets in his nice car on the way back to his nice house to his beautiful wife. He gets the call from Levy, who basically, on the inverse of the previous scene, says, "Hey, we've got this script. It's a you know can't lose type affair." And he puts the man on the line, who basically recants the entire plot of the film to him. And we find out
1: this is fucking Robert Altman. I just (laughs) I, I got so mad at him for doing this.
0: And it's the man who was writing the postcards, and we never found
1: out who it was. If only they got in like maybe Kiefer Sutherland to the voice. <laughs> so you'd be like, okay, so it was a name, someone. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, he tells him. So basically the guy that was in the postcards, he knows everything. Cause he just says, Hey, I have the story. This is a story for that I have for you. And it's like, studio exec, it's getting death threats. He thinks that it's a writer. He kills him. Turns out that he kills the wrong person, but then he gets away with it. Oh, cause he starts dating the, the writer's, Girlfriend. but he
0: says you know but it has a happy ending for the right price yeah and, and
1: yeah and, and Robbins is like okay i can guarantee you the right price if you guarantee me the happy ending what's it called <laughs> and then it's like yeah it's a voice on the phone but you can feel it like turning to look at the screen <laughs> the player
0: it's the end of that thing you do with the wise <laughs> black man who turns to the screen and winks at the camera
1: yep and then Robbins is like huh I like it.
0: And then we find out his wife comes out to greet him and she's pregnant. So. Yes,
1: like, so June is there and she's pregnant. So, and it's only been one year. So they got to work. Uh, so <laughs> the, the question
0: needs to be begged Did, you know, Robert Altman just take on this movie just because he hates Vincent D'Onofrio <laughs> and just wanted to, you know, <laughs> publicly shame him? Because. I- I Not, think that no, no one cares about him dying.
1: No, no, and there's, you know, I, we skipped over like the thing that actually really made me sick, which is after the screening, but before he gets into his car and gets that phone call, there's like a couple extra minutes of That's unnecessary right. meanness. It's just basically the movie takes the time to shit on one Bonnie. of its best characters, like Bonnie, the story editor. She's the only person at the screening that stands up for what they thought was right and what, you know, she says, hey, this new ending is bullshit. And then she actually calls out the writer and she's like, hey, you sold out. What happened to, to real stories about real people with no stars and whatever? Yeah. And, uh, and the writer's like, yeah, but, you know, this is what sells. And, you know, the, stu- the, the test screening, they hated the, the ending. That's reality. <laughs> and then she gets fired for speaking her mind, for taking a stand. She gets fired and then she goes to Griffin's office.
0: On the way, her heel breaks. Yes, she falls. confirmed worst day ever.
1: Yes. And then she goes to Griffin, and Griffin wouldn't even take the time of the day to... uh... And she's hysterical, bawling. Yes. And and it ends, like, the last thing you see of her is her sitting on the steps outside the studio crying as he drives away. And you're like, okay, what are you trying to tell me, Robert (laughs) (laughs) Holden?
0: Women have no place in show business?
1: Exactly. Because the last thing you see, the last time you see Whoopi Goldberg is her, like watching from the window as powerlessly powerlessly as Tim Robbins walks away, Mm scot-free knowing that he got away with murder. Um, and
0: as we forgot to mention also your love of taglines for this, as uh, Griffin pulls away from the lot, the last thing we see is the studio slogan movies now more than ever.
1: Yep. Yeah. That's, uh,
0: and then we get the end in neon pink (laughs) letters that hit the screen. Yes.
1: He, as he walks home with his pregnant wife, uh, Yeah. What bullshit. Fluff. Total fluff. fluff. Okay, so here's one thing. First, get rid of all the cameos, then you're down with like a 30-minute sitcom. If you got rid of all the unnecessary appearances by actors and directors and whatever. Uh, Number two, the movie needed to make up its mind about whether it wanted to be part of the system or it wanted to criticize the system. If I wanted to give Alden more credit, I would say that maybe it started as one and it became the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It it's maybe he was the writer. Maybe the, the character that he's uh channeling that's channeling him is not Malcolm McDowell, but it's the writers that sell out. Yeah. So he started this project, the player saying, Okay, we're gonna say something about Hollywood, and it's gonna be with no stars, it's gonna be a really dark, depressing ending. And then in the process of making the movie, it just it just got away from him. And, yeah. and they're like, Well. Either the movie gets made with the stars, or it doesn't get made at all. Which is kind of what I heard as uh, a—I think it was Max Landis—that was using that as a uh, as an explanation as to why you have the oh god, what's the movie with uh, Scarlett Johansson? They're always angry because they cast a white actress instead of a an Asian actress. Uh, Aloha? No, (laughs) Scarlett Johansson. Even no, that's Emma Stone. (laughs) Oh, okay. No, no, no. It's a movie that hasn't come out yet. Uh, It's based on an anime. you, I know. you know, but, but post-2014,
0: uh, my movie knowledge is lacking.
1: But the argument was that, you know, well, you could cast an Asian actress to play that main role, but right now there aren't any Asian actresses that would have the pool that somebody like Scarlett Johansson does. So if you want to get the movie financed and made, then you should – you have to cast Scarlett Johansson. In, no, that's
0: – Okay, That we're not in real it, talk, though. So.
1: <laughs> so maybe that happened to uh, Robert Altman, where he was like – but I want it to be all unknown so that people can focus on the message. And they're like, yeah, but that's not – we can't make that movie and yeah. actually make our money back. So instead we're going to have you can. everybody.
0: You have to be one man. His name is James Cameron, the bravest pioneer. No budget too steep, no seat too deep. Who's that? It's him, James Cameron.
1: Hey, James Cameron had
0: uh, – Who was an avatar and how much fucking money did that movie make?
1: Number one, Giovanni (laughs) Rubisi. Number two, Sigourney Weaver. Poor man, Susan Sarandon.
0: (laughs) I got them confused a lot when I was younger. Number three... The charismatic enigma, Sam Worthington. Exactly.
1: Number four, uh, went on to do uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, Mm -hmm. Zoe Saldana.
0: Okay, again, point being, and this isn't real talk, so (laughs) we can chop this up in post. Um, (laughs) But yeah, the movie is like... It didn't build any sympathy for any of the characters and the yeah, I didn't really know what it wanted to say. And even when it said, you know, no stars, it vilified that. And, yeah, it's...
1: You know what I realized?
0: The writers can die and no one cares, but the people of power need to remain.
1: Uh, yeah, a very confused movie from a filmmaker that I would imagine has had better days. Again, if this had been his final movie, maybe. It would be like, okay, it's kind of a confused fuck you, but it's still a fuck you to the system. But he went on to make more movies. In Hollywood. So, what gives? Yeah. Griffin, I have Larry Levy on the line. Larry, how's the screening go? How's my new ending? Fantastic, fantastic. Work like gangbusters. That's why you get the big bucks, Griff.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop kissing my ass, Larry. What do you want? Can't this wait?
1: I don't think it should. This is hot. I got a writer in here who's got a pitch I think you ought to hear. I think it's something we should go for. It's a great idea. Yeah, who's the writer? I'll put him on the speaker. Hold on a minute. I Griff. Remember me? I'm the asshole he used to be in the postcard business. You? Yeah, that's right. The king of suspense himself. You remember me? I haven't heard from you for a while. Well, I've been busy. I've been writing a script. I got okay, inspired. Okay, tell him. Give him the pitch. You'll love this script, and it's great. All right, it's a Hollywood story, grip. A real thriller. It's about a shitbag producer. Studio exec who murders a writer he thinks is harassing him. Problem is, he kills the writer writer. Now he's got to deal with blackmail as well as the cops. But here's the switch. Son of a bitch. He gets away with it. Larry, get off the speaker. I want to talk to him privately. Sure thing. This is a winner, Griffin. It's a winner. He gets away with it? Absolutely. It's a Hollywood ending, Griff. He marries the dead writer's girl, and they live happily ever after. Can you guarantee that ending? If the
0: price is right, you got it. If you can guarantee me that ending. You got a deal. I guarantee it, Griffin. What do you call this thing anyway? Player,
1: player, I like that. What took you so long?
0: Traffic was a bitch. Real talk. All right, real talk for the player. Again, directed by Robert Altman of nashville and popeye fame uh released on let's see here looks like national release was april 10th of 1992 budget of eight million dollars shockingly um according to the calculations if the people that did cameos actually charged their like their going rate at the time the film would have cost well <laughs> over 100 million dollars to make uh had a pretty solid box office return of a little under 22 million dollars
1: um towering 98% on rotten tomatoes towering it was uh, i mean there aren't that many reviews for it yeah but still i mean it got to the point where there's only that i could find only one negative quote to which pull. is the f-
0: a first with the exception obviously of uh, modern times because it was a 100% well yeah <laughs> so for this it's basically the thing of we didn't really have too much to relay in the first portion
1: so who was the
0: negative reviewer
1: the negative reviewer was one Jonathan Rosenbaum from Chicago Reader he says it's supposed to be scathing, but the pleasure it affords is like what you get from watching the Oscars. Celebrity spotting and in jokes. That sounds like we should have put him hand in uh in the like we should have invited him to guest in the first half of the show. because yeah. that's kind of what we're saying. But then there's like a whole bunch of people that loved it, pretty much everybody else, including um Roger Ebert from Chicago Sun-Times, who says, A movie about today's Hollywood, hilarious and heartless, in about equal measure, and often at the same time. Uh, Andrew Beach from Common Sense Media says, Noir masterpiece has nudity, lots of strong language. What?
0: <laughs> I think Libby Goldberg's the only person that really swears in it.
1: Uh, yeah, and really, nudity, I mean, you see... As we mentioned several times in the previous segment, you get
0: some some Robin's dong, but but that's it, right? Uh, you see Bonnie's breasts. In oh the yeah, that's hot right. when they're In the hot tub, scene. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But it's like it's not even making a point of it. It's no, just it's very not. casual. Uh,
0: Whitney. <laughs> Neither was the scene with Tim Robbins' Wang, but we seem to be pretty <laughs> we, yeah, enamored we, by it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, because it's a lot less usual. You know, you see boobs a lot, but when you see somebody's penis on screen, it's like. I mean, one it can't especially be especially one that a
0: big old cake of mud falls off of. <laughs> right,
1: it's just it had its own reveal, yeah, it did. so it merited uh, being discussed. Um, okay, Whitney Seabold from Crave Online says Altman was making a sour, salient, cynical, and passionate point about his about how artistry and edge had been drained from Hollywood. By 1992, the suits were in charge. Uh, Kevin Carr from 7M Pictures says Altman lets us vacation in Hollywood for a bit. But not too long to feel smothered. And then finally, Hal Hinson from the Washington Post says Altman loves practical jokes, and the player is his craftiest prank, his jolly last laugh. And that's fucked up because he made a lot of movies after this. Yeah. <laughs> it's not his last laugh.
0: Also, he didn't write it. So.
1: Yeah. It, it, I mean, his last laugh is. Uh, Oh, I've seen his last movie. The one he did with uh John C. Riley and uh I think it's Woody Harrelson, Kevin Klein, Lindsay Lohan is in it. Um
0: A Prairie Home Companion?
1: Yes. Now that's his last laugh. So I don't know what this dude from Washington Post was thinking. Was he like writing him off ahead of time?
0: <laughs> so he was nominated for Best Director in this, uh, for the Academy Award. Um but yeah, again, he did not write it. It was written by Michael Tolkien. Um from what I was able to find in my research of this, uh, others considered for the lead role of Griffin Mill were John Travolta, which wouldn't have worked. And more Give him in- the shot! <laughs> more <laughs> interestingly, Chevy Chase.
1: Wow. That's a completely different movie, though.
0: Now, he is a mean-spirited asshole, so I could have definitely bought him in that role.
1: Yeah, but but I think you need the baby blues. As much fun as I made of uh, Tim Robbins' appearance in... Uh, Hashtag CC, I think that you need you need to be you need to have those looks to get away with what he gets away with in this movie.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. It's that boyish charm, which I'm not sure Chevy Chase ever had. But um
1: Right. So Yeah. Um So talk to me, Alex. Tell me tell me how you feel about this movie. Uh because i I mean I'd seen it once before, I told you like is uh, when this I was is in film my first school, time seeing it, yeah, I was in film school, I saw it, and it was very hyped because it opened in Peru years after it already played here, so it had a reputation, and everybody loved it, and so I went to see it in the movie theaters and uh and I was uh, I think that I came out of it feeling the way that you feel about it right now. <laughs> I'm not down on it, right um
0: it's. There's some really good acting in it and some really interesting things in there. Um, I can't – as far – I I understand what it's trying to say, but as far as a movie goes, the first hour I was just like, okay. Like I was waiting kind of for – because it just felt like all build. Even when he killed a dude, it just felt like it was build.
1: <laughs> I know. You, you turned to me and you're like, well, it's been an hour. I'm still waiting for something to happen. I'm like, he just killed a man.
0: But it just felt like <laughs> consequential to the story. Really, when I – when I got invested in it, the one, the first scene that really got my, uh, you know, my blood pumping, so to speak, was the interrogation scene where they called him down to the station, which is really
1: late in the movie. Yeah, I mean...
0: exactly. Which up until then I, I was having a good time, but it was a lot of just because I was falling for the gimmickry of the film overall. Right. But that scene's so good when the tension's building, where Whoopi Goldberg and. Lyle Lovett are just doing those things to make him uneasy and Tim Robbins response to it and he's getting more and more uncomfortable it's a really really great scene and Whoopi Goldberg is in my opinion the MVP of this movie
1: uh, she is fantastic she's great uh, but I think that well we'll talk about my favorite part of the movie later but no Fred she's great Ward, character actor Fred Ward <laughs> Character the Fred cleaner. Ward. no he's just he's just solid he's great uh, um, you know and
0: the whole notion of the gimmick film so I have two schools of thought on this um the whole endless cameos type thing, it's something that's really often attempted in Hollywood constantly, and I'm definitely not going to say this movie didn't succeed at it, because it's a, a very enjoyable movie. Um, it does kind of get a bit much at times, but you know you have to also look at basically what the modern version of that is, where it's either a gimmick, where there's a bunch of people in the movie, like The Expendables, which... For what they are, fine. The the first one's kind of shit, but the second one is amazing. Uh, That's neither here nor there. Um, Truthfully, I still, even after watching this, I think the master of the ensemble cast would be uh, Soderbergh, I think. Oh, okay. I think he really, and trust me, he's had some misfires too, but if you look at a movie like Contagion, that takes... About a dozen A list actors in a film and puts them all in respective roles that tie together without it becoming too much. Whereas this, I'm not saying it clearly wasn't a case of all these people were meant to have defining roles or anything, but after a while it got kind of exhaustive to the point where we were kept being like, oh yeah, what were they in? What were they in? <laughs> and it distracts you from the actual, you know, overall plot of the film.
1: Yeah, I, I think that uh, what helped me because I liked it now more than I did back then, and I think it's easy. To get distracted by the by the murder part of it, which I, I think, I really think that I felt that way, like the way that you feel right now, I felt back then, which was, I, I was restless with the fact that the murder portion of it was not getting addressed as much. Uh, I mean there's a reason why you found I think that scene so enjoyable because it finally makes something happen after he's killed somebody yeah. <laughs> you know and uh, but this time I was watching it and I was really just soaking in the other part of it like I guess what he really was going for which was like hey I'm just going to like really take Hollywood to task for the way that they do business mm-hmm. and and I think that that is it, it really it works really well. I because the saturation or over saturation of uh of cameos, it it's intentional. It's just it's meant to make you like sick of it right now. Yeah. It's like it, it really the fact that everybody in this movie all they do is talk about movies or about the making of movies, other than the painter chick, you know, and the cops. But for the most part, all Tim Robbins does in his movie is it's also uh Insulated from the real world, mm-hmm. that when Gallagher brings up the idea of like, hey, we should be actually making movies from the headlines and going back to human element, it seems Everyone's like such like an, blown away, right? It's yeah. just such an alien concept to them. Yeah, uh, and so I really enjoyed the fact that it was the point of it was that it was self-referential. That is like, yeah, of course I'm making a movie about Hollywood and I'm casting a lot of Hollywood big names because oh, that's yeah. what it is. And and so before, like the first time I watched it, I don't think that I got that, I, or, or I don't think that. I could really enjoy that because I just I wanted to be like, but what happens with the murder and yeah. what happens to him and how is he gonna get away from this and and then this time I was watching it and because I knew that he got away with it and I kind of knew that I didn't have to worry about the the that part of the story. I was just kind of like sitting back and just enjoying, like yeah, it's just I, you know I was like, oh that's funny, that's like you know Malcolm McDowell and that's Andy McDowell and
0: uh now the payoff to the movie is fucking wonderful. How throughout the entire movie, every time they reference the young girl, it's Julia Roberts, and then the hero, it's Bruce Willis, and then that's how it fucking <laughs> and then he ends. He shows up. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The fact that they completely sell out, uh, and that is my favorite scene in the movie. The the pitch, the original pitch, the two writers do, like Dean Stockwell and, and the other guy. Uh, it's so well done uh, because they're, I mean, yeah, they're being pretentious and then be like, you know, they're trying too hard, like like a lot of writers do, I guess, but. But they really pitch a really good movie, yeah, uh, or at least a really good opening, a really good hook, and and the fact that Tim Robbins, even though he's worried about worried meeting for his life, he can see the money, in right? It. Yeah. He like sits up and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, and uh, and it's the most engaged you've seen him because you've seen people pitch to him throughout the entire movie, and this is the one time that you see him really react to it. Uh, so that I think that that's built really well that scene and the fact that it just. I was laughing as I was watching it, also because I knew how the movie turns out in the end, which is like every time that the guy's saying, "and no stars," and uh, you know she dies because that's life, that's reality, that's what happens, and I knew that at the end he was just gonna sell out. So uh, I'm completely
0: great. comfortable with conceding that this could be a movie that takes multiple viewings to appreciate. Because yeah, I think just the inner, you know. Uh, The story of it, you know, I wanted resolution on that end before, you know, I kind of realized, uh, case in point, Warrior. I watched that movie, and I was like, okay, what's going to happen to the fight? And then, like, it was over. I was like, well, that sucked. And then I rewatched it. I was like, oh, it it doesn't matter what (laughs) happens. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I thought a lot of it was very, like, comedically very good. Um, What's-her-face? June. Um... Greta Scotchy, Skatchy? Um I'm not overly familiar with her. Sketchy. Sketchy. <laughs> Bueller. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not really overly familiar with her. I was doing a bit of research on this earlier today, and I wasn't really too familiar with too much of her work. Uh, I did see that basically uh, Altman wanted that to be a full nude sex scene, but she was the one that didn't want to do it. So oh, he I... just was like, all right, from the neck up. Which I suppose is as good a take as any to do it.
1: I, I actually think I, – I thought it that was It definitely was makes the The,
0: the viewer, confession. It gives it more of like a uh, intimate feel. You yeah.
1: Feel, you know? And also the fact that I, – I just assumed that he had gone through the close-ups because of the confession. Because when he confesses, you want to see their faces. And uh, so I assumed that that was just how he had meant it from the beginning. That's uh, uh,
0: Even in Contrarian's Corner, you hit the nail on the head. If you can lay the pipe good enough, you can just tell him about anything.
1: <laughs> you can just... <laughs> Dude, that's the time when you tell him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, there, there's a lot of things that you could take away from the movie and, and, and it doesn't... The story holds. Uh-huh. You know, going back to the Lyle Lovett character and, you know, we're talking about that in, in Contrarian's Corner that... He's really there as a red herring that's not really necessary. Um, it I mean, it I, I helps was that Lyle
0: Lovett's a creepy-looking motherfucker. <laughs>
1: right. I was wondering how you were taking it because I knew that he was a cop from the very beginning because I read the movie. You can see
0: his badge in a shot. So, like, immediately okay. I was like, okay, he's, he's a cop. Right,
1: because when you said it, you called it out, and I didn't say anything. I was yeah. like, really? Uh, did they ruin the surprise and I didn't notice? Yeah. Because I knew that he was. it was supposed to be a big reveal, Uh, but... Uh, but I think it's, it just adds to the whole thing. You know, mm-hmm. I I really, I would love to just find out, like, what the rationale is. Like, how do you get to, like, okay, I'm going to cast Lyle Love it in this part. I mean, it could have been as easy as, well, we're casting Julia Roberts in that other part. Yeah. And, you know, so she has a connection with Lyle Love It, So we'll put Lyle Love It on this one. Or if there's, like, even more to it. If, if he was, like, really overthinking it and going, like, well, no. Because it's not just that Lyle Lovett... It- kind of look like a creepy guy <laughs> but also that I don't know you know because he has this whole uh, uh, scene later where he's like killing the flies and quoting freaks and all yeah. that stuff it's just uh, I don't know it's, the the casting just fascinates me here how did they pick the cameos you know I did he did he really just call in favors or was he calling it specific actors
0: uh, hey man late 20s Gina Gershon I'm okay with that
1: and she actually has a part She, I mean she shows up like you know, kind of like Piven. Like, like Piven, yeah. yeah. She's throughout the movie. Uh, now,
0: it, the opening shot that we were alluding to at the beginning, that was about eight minutes. And in my research, basically they had to rehearse it for an entire day.
1: So there's no cuts? No. Because I thought maybe they were like faking.
0: Like, no, it's one continuous shot that goes... Um, according to this seven minutes and 47 seconds long. So it's one from that opening shot of the slate that kind of pans out and then goes from office to office, which God damn the amount of like mics <laughs> and shit that they had to have rigged up. But yeah, I, from what I found, it, they had to rehearse it for an entire day and it took 15 takes
1: only 15. That's pretty amazing.
0: But still, like, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, one person just out of place.
1: God damn it, Phil. <laughs> Robbins, stop fucking around, <laughs> pull your pants up
0: uh but yeah that that was definitely it set it set a tone, but what I appreciated about it it didn't set like what you would expect it wasn't this long drawn out you know um monotonous type thing where from there it kind of just was cut 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 cut
1: yeah it it's really i I was wondering how I was going to react to this movie now because I think that the first time I watched it obviously, well, you know, that was so many years ago and I've seen so many more movies since then. Mm-hmm. And I do have a thing where I, I find that most movies about show business actually irritate me because they go for really easy jokes. Yeah. And uh, But in this one, because I think the the big joke is the movie itself, you know, the fact mm-hmm. that it's just not... uh, It's not going for big laughs most of the time, you know? And it's yeah. not like... It's not telling you a lot of things that you already know. I mean, and when it does is doing it in a very crafty way. All the pitches that you see at the beginning and then throughout the movie, you know, they're funny just in the way that they're kind of like nonsensical or mm-hmm. that they sound really silly. Uh, but at the same time, they, they ring true. And, uh, you know what's the first thing that the guy pitches when he's uh oh the the sequel to the Graduate you yeah. know which is like ridiculous you're like you're hearing it and you're like this is insane but at the same time you're like a hundred percent sure that somebody has pitched that at some point
0: absolutely you yeah. know
1: and you're like that's
0: shit I forget what he like tries to call it the the Graduate Two or something like the Graduate Still no postgraduate <laughs> is what post-graduate. he's <laughs> yeah
1: yeah and so I, I think that that is way more clever than the average you know line where you'll just have like you know oh the executive is getting blown by his assistant like you know in his office or whatever uh there was this show uh and you know i might actually love it now but uh back when it first aired i remember feeling like okay you guys are just going after the easy joke and it was uh you know jay moore yeah uh Bob Sugar from Jerry Maguire. There was this show called Action where he was a movie producer or like a studio executive. I don't remember. I I saw it in Peru, so it was like just cable. Public (laughs) access. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he was like a studio executive, and it was like a season-long story of him trying to make a movie, I think. And uh, and it was like my memory of it is that it was just trying so hard to be edgy and like – make the jokes that nobody knew them and it was like all of it like when i was watching i was like okay but this is stuff that you've seen before yeah you know like as far as showbiz uh comedy and so that's the entire opposite of something like this where you're like it's just like all the way in showbiz like you're surrounded by movie stars and uh and somehow it doesn't really feel like a gimmick thing like it's not gimmicky because it actually has a point. It has something that it really wants to say.
0: It felt gimmicky because I, when we watch these movies, we're looking through the lenses. Oh, of well, like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, and again, like I said, I'm perfectly comfortable with going back and revisiting this just on my own because there were definitely things I liked about it and could see getting more out of when I'm not, you know, just purposely trying to be cynical. Because yeah, it doesn't beat you over the head with it. It's Literally, at the end of Expendables, while they're riding motorcycles, it plays the boys are back in town. So it's like, oh, okay.
1: Yeah. This one, it has... You know, I was... Again, back to Contreras Corner. I was criticizing like, the, the overuse of uh, movie posters and taglines, but I actually really like that. Dude, because... we
0: fucking lost it when he was leaving for Mexico, and it, it zoomed in on the M is for murder poster. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, the tagline is like, the worst crime of all, or something. Yeah. It's just right after he's a complete shit to his girlfriend. <laughs> uh I really like it because it also just shows you. I mean, I could be 100% reading way too much into it, but I really like the fact that it opens up to just is this portrait of this woman, of this man that's uh, surrounded by this toxic environment, you know, movie making where you just, if that's all you talk about, if this is where you function 24 7 and you're surrounded by these posters and these stories and whatever, then yeah, well. Then you kill a guy and you don't really feel that bad about it, you know? In his mind, he's like the hero of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And everything, the way he acts, every decision he makes, it just has to do with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's not... But he's not a monster in the sense that he's completely unsympathetic. I mean, it's a huge achievement that we're still with him throughout the entire movie we yeah. never completely turn off from rooting for him i i still want him to get away <laughs> even after he's being a horrible person
0: selfishly i wanted fred ward to have to kill someone to keep him clean <laughs> <laughs> just to have a fred ward freak out scene i did find it very fascinating that he has top billing along with uh yeah he's just
1: like part of the ensemble i mean he has as much screen time as i think the studio had
0: yeah but robin uh or tim robbins and uh Greta on the cover of the Criterion. It's them and then Fred and Ward. And then Fred Ward. God bless him. Yeah. I think Altman was just throwing him a bone. It's like, hey, man, you got commercials and <laughs> being DJ Qualls' dad ahead. You know, I, I want to give you a little something here. So
1: I mean, Gallagher didn't make the billing, and he's kind of the antagonist in this movie.
0: Yeah. If there is one.
1: You know, he's the closest to, like, the, the guy that we're, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, you could see Whoopi Goldberg as another one or even D'Onofrio.
0: that is great too we were talking about it in contrarian's corner about how he uh david kahane i'm sorry man you have the wrong guy
1: (laughs) (laughs) i yeah i couldn't remember who played him and then like i told you i didn't recognize him until you know we got to the credits by
0: modern standards he is fairly unrecognizable with the kramer hair and the glasses and everything
1: yeah i mean the last two movies that i've seen him in were uh jurassic world and uh and then he's Kingpin and Daredevil. So he's bulked up. And, uh, no, not the movie. I'm sorry. Okay. The, the Netflix TV show. <laughs>
0: That's the problem of having a podcast, an audio podcast. I just gave Julio <laughs> a very confused look. No. Say, he, he is he not Michael, Michael Clark, Clark Duncan. Duncan. <laughs> I know I've said this three times already, but I'm definitely going to have to go back and rewatch it just because, um, it's kind of a lot to take in. And especially hearing your perspective on it, watching it a second time and, Kind of having that of like, okay, it doesn't matter that this thing happened, so it just kind of
1: yeah. That that was at least my experience this time, where Mm -hmm. I was just like giggling a lot because I just knew I knew how the murder plotline ended, so I was just like soaking everything else in. And the Uh,
0: witness swears on her mother's grave and whoopie.
1: Where the fuck is your mother buried? (laughs) That is amazing. That might be one of the funniest moments in the movie. Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was great. Uh, I haven't seen many Altman movies. I've seen uh You seen Popeye? I haven't seen Popeye. I saw Prairie Homes Companion. Uh I saw uh the one with Clive Owen where it's uh it's not upstairs, downstairs, but that's basically the thing. And that is also like a murder mystery, but so you see like the it's like one of those high class British homes and so you have the British royalty or whatever. They're like on what the year top floor. That was one of his last movies. It might have been the one that he did before um, Prairie Home Companion. and uh, The Company? No. <laughs> the, Gosford the company. Park? Gosford Park. There you okay. go. Yeah, The Company. Is that with uh, Chris Rock and Anthony Hopkins? That's not Altman, <laughs> Pretty sure that's an action movie.
0: Uh, no, The Company with Nev Campbell, Malcolm McDowell, and James Franco. The hell? I know. Good Lord. That, that is a murderer's row if I've ever heard one.
1: I, I didn't even know about that movie, no. <laughs>
0: From 2003, made one-third of its budget back.
1: That was James Franco before his Oscars
0: uh, hosting duties. Yeah, when he looked exactly the same as he does now. <laughs> no, Popeye. Robin Williams plays Popeye. Shelley Duvall is Olive Oil.
1: I've seen the pictures. I, I might have even seen the trailer, but I just... Oh no, then my It's Popeye. Yeah.
0: Uh Shelley Duvall Duval is fairly talentless still.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Being a I watched this documentary about The Shining.
0: Uh-huh. Uh she was like apparently like impossible to work with on that, right?
1: Really? I I I mean, what I heard was the is not about shining; it's about people that see conspiracy theories in the shining. Oh, and uh, but there was like a lot of clips from the movie. But what I've heard is that uh, Kubrick was like a complete asshole to her, like that I knew there her. was a
0: problem, but like he was, yeah, it wasn't her. My bad. Apologies to <laughs> Shelley Duvall. <laughs> you're okay. Um, I know you're having problems currently, but uh, it was Kubrick. Yeah, he was piece of shit to her.
1: Yeah. Uh, but no, I I know Altman is well known for just doing like ensembles and just big sprawling stories with huge casts. Uh, I've never seen Shortcuts, and I really want to because that's that's always sounded like the perfect movie for me to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I really I love PTAs, Magnolia, and everybody would always talk about Shortcuts when they were talking about Magnolia. So uh, that's on the list. But I was surprised. I was you know the criterion sale happened and we already talked about doing the player and i saw that it was there and i was like oh let's yeah, take it and I'm let's gonna, hope that it's better than i remember i'm
0: going to jump on this <laughs> uh yeah and that was part of it too the player was like um altman's return to big hollywood type thing. so like after the 70s he kind of went into the later 70s and early 80s excuse me did a lot of more low budget things cuz he rejected the Hollywood system <laughs> in the way it was. So I suppose as a comeback goes is to make a statement. He definitely did the right – chose the right path on this
1: one. He was like, hey, you know, like all those things I've been complaining about the past few years?
0: Let's laugh about it. Let's put it into a movie and just <laughs> yeah. laugh about it.
1: Let's bury the hatchet. And the Hollywood was like, okay, so you're going to make money? Cool. We're friends again.
0: <laughs> Let's do it. Um and we did get a Lily Tomlin cameo as well. There's just too many to name.
1: I halfway through the movie, I started regretting not writing them down as I saw them because it would be a huge list. And then the credits actually have a list of all the cameos. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Scott Glenn and Lily Tomlin have a cameo, and that.
0: And I did verify there was a deleted scene where Jeff Daniels is playing golf.
1: Okay, so at some point, I've I have to have seen it twice then, because how else do I know that deleted scene? <laughs> You dreamed it. Maybe I dreamed. Or maybe you know. Maybe I saw it online. I don't know. But yeah, I I remember seeing that. Yeah, I mean, unless Peru got like the print with all the deleted scenes in, like where you is waited. The you waited five years for this, so we'll give you all the footage. When you were talking about a show, you were like,
0: "The show." I was just waiting for you to be like, "It premiered in 1993." Saturday Night
1: Live. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, young up and comer, Bill Murray. <laughs>
0: So with things like this, it's really difficult to you know. It goes back to our entire thesis of the Rotten Tomato theory. It's really difficult to say one way or another. You know, ninety eight percent that type of thing. It's really good for what it is. Um, yeah,
1: and it, it also like okay, so there are movies you definitely that we see know it
0: not being someone's cup of tea.
1: Yes, but also maybe not being their cup of tea now and then really like them the second time. But by then you already submitted your review to Rotten Tomatoes. You
0: put that green splotch down there.
1: Exactly. So maybe that guy that was just like, Oh, this is not good. This could be a hundred percent movie if he had like rewatched it before writing his his review. It, uh, imagine, you know. It it again, it just tells you, shows the complexities of movie watching and movie making. Yeah. And how everybody loses when you simplify it into like, well, good movie, bad movie, red, green, go. And it
0: shows and things like this, and that's why Adam Sandler movies exist. Because some people just aren't programmed to view and appreciate things and see things like this. Did so.
1: I dunno. I'm I'm going to blame you on this podcast, but uh Netflix sent me an email like saying, hey, this is a recommendation for you. And then, like, the new Kevin James movie. Oh, I got that, they that have.
0: too. I think you they get... send that to everyone. Oh, okay. They
1: send too to... It, like, okay, because yeah. I was starting to feel offended. I was like, okay, <laughs> all the good things I watch here on Netflix, and you're singling me out because maybe I watch, like, what? I mean, not Paul Blart, because Paul Blart, we watch on DVD, so... I don't know what made them think that I would be interested.
0: With my Netflix, I usually now at this point just use it to watch before I go to sleep. So it's just 30 Rock. So my recommendations <laughs> are things I would watch anyway. So you know it works out. Um, but yeah, I think everyone got that. But yeah, it's the type of thing where this type of film is definitely not for everybody. But... You know where I'm at right now. I was like, oh yeah, it was a solid seventy, but like you said, I could come back and watch this again and be like, oh yeah,
1: yeah. I'm I'm pretty happy with it being in the in the nineties. To me, you know, it's like I would give it up. It's like four and a half, maybe five stars. I I mean, I'm struggling to think of something that would that I would change because it feels like such a personal take on the. On the Hollywood, you know, system. like the story that he wanted to tell, I think he told it the way exactly the exact way he wanted to tell it. And me saying, well, you know, you could have had it could have been shorter, or it could have, you yeah. know, you could have, I would have liked more of a reaction from her when she finds out that he's a killer. Except no, that's perfect, you know. I
0: it's very it's a very strange line to walk because then it becomes the thing of. Because you can't say this for every movie made, where it's oh, then that wouldn't have been their movie. Because not every movie is made with a personal touch, right? Right. So, but with this, you know, if you fucked with it too much, it would have changed. You know, um, what he wanted to do with it. So it's yeah, it's it's a fine line to walk.
1: In. Yeah, I think it's because because it's not it's so not plot related that a lot of things that you, it's a lot harder to pinpoint like what you would like, what's not working for you if something doesn't work, you know, if it's not related to the plot, when it's related to a lot to of plot, people's
0: problems with Christopher Nolan's movies, it's like, <laughs> but yeah, if you change that, it would fuck up his entire movie. So
1: yeah, like you'll say, like there's, there's a, uh, a Jeff Goldblum cameo at the party that I really, I mean, it's like the very definition of pointless, you know, yeah. cause by now it's like him talking to Gallagher and, uh, And you see him, like, it goes on for, like, a little bit. And they keep cutting back to it. Right. But it doesn't achieve anything. And by now, you've already seen Gallagher, like, sweet-talking other actors. You know, you saw him with with John Cusack and Angelica Houston and whatever. So, you know, I could say, okay, well, the movie might be, like, a little shorter. It might move a little faster if you just got rid of the Jeff Goldblum cameo. But I'm like, that's kind of like a petty criticism. (laughs) You know, I'm like, no, he wanted the Jeff Goldblum cameo, and it's not, it doesn't ruin the movie. So, you know, no, just leave it there. Just let it be what it is right now. I'm in in it works. Uh yeah, I I mean if I I would like to go back in time and just talk to myself when I watch in the movie theater and just tell him, hey, go back and watch it next week again and see how you feel about it.
0: <laughs> Don't wait twenty years. No. Come on, man. Um but yeah, that was the player. Um God almighty, we're the Entourage movie, next.
1: Dude, I can't wait. We're going to bring up the player a lot during the Entourage episode. Okay. I'm warning you, because the parallels are pretty amazing. Uh, Yeah, well... Th- yeah, <laughs> I can't wait. Uh,
0: uh, as someone who's seen collectively probably five episodes of the show and never gotten the point, I'm not particularly excited about the movie, but we'll see what happens. I've
1: seen two and a half seasons... Uh, and then our friend Eddie who has said that he's watched the entire series yeah he's watched the entire series so he he said that he would like try to record something for us so we could have like he could be part of the episode in a way because he felt like it it was his duty
0: (laughs) and and now the contrarians (laughs)
1: live from Austin Texas (laughs) it's the contrarians with Eddie Straight, <laughs> Jeremy Piven, Bobby
0: Moynihan,
1: <laughs>
0: um, yeah. So that was episode number thirty-six. Um, the new day here in America.
1: Yes, it is. Do you have? Do you have any uh, Trump's America plugs?
0: Uh, Trump's America plugs. I do have one, in fact. So yeah, the aforementioned Criterion Cell. It went on. I went and um, back in June or was it July? July is when I, I really cleaned up. I got like five or six of them. But this one, I kept it pretty modest. I got Valley of the Dolls, um, Punch Drunk Love, and I got Boyhood as well. And I put Boyhood on while I was cleaning the other day as an attempt to just have something on his background noise, as you know, we discuss, we do, when mm-hmm. we do that kind of thing. Um, and within 10 minutes, found myself entranced in it. And I had seen that movie during its original theatrical release, but truthfully... Um, As I've told you, Julio, I had a really bad experience in the theater in terms of it was full of just a bunch of teenagers that thought it was a comedy and were just laughing at everything. And it really was distracting. And, you know, a first experience of the movie can shape it. Um, Similar to uh, when The Dark Knight came out at the theater I was working at the time, like everyone who worked there came (laughs) up to watch it. So Uh... it was like a really, you know, I have a really good memory of the first time I watched that. And it's a great movie, but... So anyway, I was rewatching Boyhood, and Jesus, it's so good. And it was like watching it for the first time, and I got so much out of it, and it just resonated with me so heavily. And I was upset when it was over that it didn't <laughs> win more awards because it's...
1: uh, the mom she got the the Oscar, right? Patricia Cat. Like, Patricia Cat. Yeah, was which is so well deserved. I was. It is. At the same
0: time, what I was most upset about was that um he didn't win best director because it gets into this weird kind of tricky area nominating individual performances because it's not an individual performance <laughs> it's a performance based over a, a right somebody that plus. has a vision yeah um but it's excellent it's the type of movie that i don't just recommend to people like you julio that i know your taste in movies i know that i recommend it to just pretty much anybody I was absolutely blown away by Ethan Hawke's So good in it. Ethan
1: Hawke is my favorite part of the movie. He's great. The
0: the scene where he's like, uh, all gung ho about Obama and he's having them going campaigning (laughs) for him and stuff like that. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. It's Richard Linklater is one of those guys that his, uh, filmography, it's pretty difficult to choose a favorite or anything like that. And especially in recent years, he's been on fire, but my plug is definitely for boyhood. If you haven't seen it, go and rewatch it. If, haven't seen in a while rewatch it. Cause yeah, it's something you can take away something new every time.
1: Yeah, uh, I've always... The one time that it, I get puzzled like by the awards when they don't recognize the director is when the movie wins Best Movie and the director doesn't win Best Director. Because mm-hmm. that's when I feel like that's a complete disservice to the director. <laughs> I was like, yeah. what do you think happened? Like, you know, he was the guy it shaping just the happened. movie. happened. Right. <laughs> you know, like, actor, actress. I'm like, sometimes I think that you have performances that can transcend the material. Mm-hmm. So you can think, okay, I wasn't crazy about this movie, but this performance, this actress, this actor, they did better with what they were given than I would have expected, than the average actor. The Embry. (laughs) The Embry, exactly. Uh, But when it's a movie, if you're saying that you love the movie, how can you not love the person that was shaping it, that was the creative force behind it? And I know that. And then you get into the whole, like, well, then you should be giving the award to everybody that was involved in the movie, you know, because it's not just the director, but the screenwriter and whatever. But
0: Still, uh, it's it starts with a vision type thing. Yeah, yeah, you
1: know? to me I always I'm always 100% behind the director and I know there's like people that are like, well, the director's just part of the machine and everybody else is working together, which is true, but I think that you still need somebody that's calling the shots. And that's
0: Yeah, and and of course with the whole Hollywood award hierarchy it kind of works into that weird cuz then you have things like uh Scorsese winning for the departed when it was really just the lifetime achievement. <laughs> right, or... yeah, yeah. Did Spike Jones win for screenplay or director for her?
1: Uh God, you got me. I don't know. I remember being really happy, but it could have been either way, like yeah. whichever. Uh,
0: I remember he got the standing ovation, so I was really happy for him <laughs> when it happened. <laughs> uh
1: yeah. I I have plugs too. I don't know if I do wanted to. I do. Uh, Jeremy Piven plugs. (laughs) Well played. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so it's two things. Uh, One is uh, there's a new Woody Allen. uh, Well, it's not so new now. It came out like a couple months ago, I think. Mm -hmm. He did like, it's like first thing that Woody Allen's done on TV. It's not really TV, it's Amazon Prime. Uh, But it's still like, you know, he did like a six-part miniseries for Amazon and everybody was like, well, what is it? That's going to be like and even like I remember up to like a year ago or so when they first announced that you know they signed Woody for uh to do like a thing for them uh they're like we don't know what it is we're just like telling him hey make something we'll you know they're here's the money the
0: basis of it being Woody Allen
1: Yeah yeah and then like months later they interview him and he's like I have no idea I'm supposed to be doing this Amazon thing and I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> I don't know if he was like being funny or not uh and then the trailer dropped you know uh, like a month or so before it's release And I'm like, wow, this looks great. Because, you know, the last couple movies, the Woody Allen movies I've seen, I mean, more than a couple, like, they were not great, great. You know, even when they're entertaining, I wasn't, like, super happy with them. Uh, I really like the one that he released in 2016. Uh, I thought that was really good. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg and uh, uh, Kristen Stewart. Uh, That was 2016? I thought that was a while ago. No, 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 no. The ones that – no, because she was not in the other one that he did with Jesse Eisenberg.
0: Was Ellen Page in it? Yes, Ellen Page okay, was that. That's uh, what I'm yeah.
1: of. Um, But anyway, th- so the thing is, you like, everybody's know. like, <laughs> what's going to happen? And so what happens is this, I mean, it's very much a TV show and it feels kind of old fashioned, especially the way that every episode ends like a cliffhanger. It's set in the 60s and as has the usual, like, Woody Allen and his wife are like these, you know, it's this older couple that are very, like, they're like on the, on the, they're not rich, but they're like wealthy enough to where mm-hmm. like they don't have to worry about the revolution that's happening in the sixties, you know. <laughs> and then they uh, they get involved with Miley Cyrus, uh, who's uh, okay, a hardcore. I have seen some commercials. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she is like a revolutionary. And Woody and she's is like, in it, right? Yeah, yeah. what is in it. So he's like you know, th- him and Miley Cyrus. Basically, every episode they just clash about how. Uh, you know because he's very conservative and whatever and she's just like full-on like power to the people we need to topple this government or whatever and she's like she's basically uh the police is after her so she's hiding at Woody's house because Woody's wife is uh you know knew her mom or something and uh so it's not like a tv show in the sense of like oh every episode is like a story it's more like a story told over six you know half hour episodes okay and uh And when it starts, I was like, oh, man, because I really liked the trailer. And then when it started, it wasn't that funny. Like, I felt like it was, like, a little clunky. And then, like, about halfway through, it picks up and it gets so good. And I'm like, oh, man, I really hope that people don't give up on it (laughs) early because (laughs) it's really well worth watching all the way to the end. Uh, uh, And it also has, like, some very... I watch Woody Allen to laugh, but also when it actually when he hits like some sort of like truth, yeah, it's always that's the best. And there's a moment where he's arguing with his wife, you know, because he's like, we should turn to the police, or you know i, I don't agree with the things that she does. the things that she's preaching. and uh, and they have an argument, him and his wife where she's just basically saying maybe we should get involved the way she's getting involved because there's a lot of important stuff going on in the country and and we're just kind of like sitting back because we have the luxury of oh it doesn't really affect us directly and it, we should do something and what is like but we do something you know it's called voting it's called being part of the process and and it's still funny like the argument they have is pretty funny but but it's like, oh, wow, you're talking about something that's extremely relevant to, <laughs> to America right now, you know, where yeah. he's talking about how, like, what I do is I go into a voting booth and I cast my vote and, you know, and I take part of the process. Uh, I don't go out there, like, you know, bombing cars. <laughs> yeah, And uh, I think that happens in the second episode, maybe, or even like early in the third. And I remember that's when it like won me. And I'm like, OK, I'm sticking with this until the very end just <laughs> to see uh, what happens. So it's called Crisis in Six Scenes. Yeah, uh, guess I guess six movies. But you would think that that means that every episode is one scene. But no, every episode is just like its own thing. Mm. Uh, and I – dude, by the time you get to episode six, all the things, all the balls that he's had like up in the air, they all come crashing down and it's amazing to watch. It's like really funny uh and it has like you know little cameos because again like we were talking when we were watching the player and how like i'm like how does he get like all these people here you know when yeah. you're somebody like richard altman or robert altman you can get anybody i guess to like come into your movie for like a little bit and also woody when allen, you're like woody allen same thing you can just get uh michael rapaport has like a really funny cameo like in the last episode and it's like well he's been in a few woody allen movies so of course he'll come in and like get paid scale just to like be there yeah. you know so that's that's pretty cool but yeah, that is my plug for this episode.
0: I think it's been mentioned several times on the podcast or alluded to, but I did watch Deadpool recently. So I just wanted to update.
1: I am don't remember if like yeah, yeah, we haven't talked since you watched it then. No. Okay, so tell me. Liked it. <laughs> Liked it. 3 stars. Yeah, three, yeah, yeah. three bags it was, of popcorn. Is, is it's a-
0: perfectly fine. Yeah, it was a solid three bagger, maybe even four. Um, Where do
1: you put it in the in the X Men universe?
0: Oh God! Well, I haven't seen Apocalypse yet. Um, well, you know, X Two is the best.
1: <laughs> All right, we we'll start we we'll start off with the wrong foot there. <laughs> right. Okay.
0: Uh, no, it was basically pretty perfect for what it needed to be for mm-hmm. the shitty precedent they set originally, and utilizing Ryan Reynolds for what he was or what he could be for that. And yeah, it's it it's
1: a hundred percent his comeback from Green Lantern. Oh, as yeah. As far absolutely. as like the superhero genre. It's absolutely.
0: Just... And um just every like the story works out in mean, and my girl Gina Carano, of course, not going to complain about seeing that. TJ Miller. Miller. Yeah. I mean it's simple, but it's all funny.
1: Yeah. Uh I my only complaint was that I felt that it was sometimes the it's low budget kind of show a little bit mm-hmm. because in the universe where it is, I mean, it goes out of its way to reference the X-Men and the X-Mansion and whatever. And then all you get is like a pretty shitty Colossus. <laughs> And, and, Who uh, never turns back into a human. <laughs> right. And then, uh, uh, a teenage mutant that kind of looks like, like the mutants in the third X Men movie, which yeah. all look like more like gang members than actual, like, superheroes or supervillains. I knew Colossus
0: uh, was in it, but when they showed the Xavier school, I was like, oh, uh? <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, and even, like, the bad guy, I mean, he's okay, but he's not. It's, it all looks pretty unimpressive compared to Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool. Yeah. So, it was fun. But it was it was still yeah. fun. It was just like, okay, this would be better if it had the bigger budget and they could go places. And I'm guessing that's but what the sequel is going to be.
0: I assume they sacrificed for that budget because that would be R-rated and they didn't think it was going to make its return. And then it fucking oh, made a killing. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. the sequel is definitely going to be...
1: Which, you know, I read somewhere that the, the writer-director is not coming back for the sequel. Like, they had creative differences. And so he probably... It's parted
0: the... With... What was that Keanu movie that came out that everyone was shit, batshit about?
1: The... Oh, um uh, John. Not John Wick. John Wick. I thought at first you were talking about, you were talking about the Keanu movie with Kean Peele, where they're oh, no, no, looking no. for their cat, whose name John. Uh mnemonic. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, John Wick, the director that's doing the sequel.
1: Okay, that's but John Wick is not a funny movie. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll watch it. He oh, said, yeah. "Did you watch like, the the post credit scene where he's like?" Saying, hey, next for the sequel, we're getting cable. Like, we're cable's coming in. Oh, they,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it, it was fun. They'll
1: cast our boy, uh, Dolph Lundgren, as cable.
0: That'd be fantastic.
1: <laughs> then I, I don't know if you saw, like, I posted on Facebook or something. Cause somebody posted a picture on that. When we posted the Punisher episode, mm-hmm. they posted a picture, made, made a comment about uh, Dolph Lundgren being the perfect cable. Or Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Yeah, with Jeffrey Dean Morgan in that like, Walking Dead right now, he's tied up. Okay. he has no time to do that. But
0: yeah, Dolph's got that natural silver hair now, so... And, and the gruffness yeah. necessary.
1: Uh, yeah, dude. Also, like, mini-plug, The Walking Dead, I mean, obviously, if you're not a fan, it's not like this season is going to make you a fan. But they... You could have thought that they painted themselves into a corner last season with the way it ended. Mm-hmm. It basically ended on a cliffhanger where, like, they killed somebody and you didn't know who and then this season they were opening, revealing you know who died and uh in my opinion, they did a bang up job of like navigating those waters <laughs> and not really not disappointing. I thought they they did great with how they resolved that whole thing. Mm-hmm. uh they've certainly kicked it up a notch this season, in my opinion, of course, you know you'll see naysayers everywhere say, "Well, the show sucks, but more than likely those people hated the show." Way before the season started, so everyone has naysayers. right? It's like, what are you even watching? What do you wa- Dude, you want to talk? Now I'm gonna go on a tangent, but this is—it pissed me off so much. The reviewer for The Walking Dead for uh, the AV Club, he mentions in his review of the season finale from last season, or no, the season premiere for this season, that he that he was he already started writing his review while he was watching the episode. And I'm like, don't you get paid to pay attention?
0: Yeah, that doesn't make any fucking
1: right. sense. Right. And I'm like, That's, he was just like saying, and, and then I read like all his reviews for the episodes since the season started. And I'm like, okay, this is a person that the only reason he's watching The Walking Dead is because he has to review it. Um, because I'm assuming he gets paid to review it. Yeah. But maybe shouldn't you put somebody that actually wants to watch the show? <laughs> I mean, it's okay. A fan? Right. It's okay if a fan feels disappointed by the show and then they write yeah. about it. But if somebody that's already written the show off, why do you still have them writing about this? You know, cuz all it is is like him griping about things that when I read them I'm like, "Well, I was perfectly okay with this." Yeah. You know, it I think it kind of defeats the purpose of uh, uh, you know, as if you can't really review something that you're not interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh so I don't know. And, and then you read, you know, and, and his reviews are full of, like, little comments in the sites that where, even when something is good, you know, he, he has to mention how, like, well, but the show hasn't been good in a long time. Why are you watching?
0: Yeah. Why are you writing that about it? It defeats the whole purpose yeah. of the, yeah, covering that.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm done with my tangent.
0: Well, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, but that was a player that does kickstart our four-parter in the showbiz industry. Yeah. Um, now, if you have any feedback, any questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, anything like that, don't hesitate to reach out to us at wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that is correct. We, today, we came to the joint realization that we do not mention our email address on our intro.
0: We both just assumed it was part of the pre recorded <laughs> intro. But yeah, questions, comments, feedback, or recommendations, yeah, wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. Um, but that will do it for this episode of the contrarians next time oh man it's gonna be the entourage movie which is gonna be a, a steep hill to climb
1: glorious it will be glorious I promise <laughs>
0: uh, but yeah for the meantime that's gonna do it uh, for me Alex and my buddy Julio here on the contrarians we are right you are wrong and we will catch you next time
1: the summer of 1999, back when you threw my mind, and so he- In the dark, I'm just fine Things are asking Hey guys, do you have a screenplay you need feedback on? Well, you are in luck. I, Julio, the half of the Contrarians that speaks with an accent, I'm doing official screenplay coverage now, and if you're a listener of the show, you'll get a discount. Just email wearthecontrarians at gmail.com and tell us which is your favorite episode of the podcast and why. Turn around, it's about two weeks, and you'll get detailed notes that are even more thorough than what we do in the show, although it will also be less funny. For more information, email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com or visit our website, wearethecontrarians.com and click on the Julio Reads Your Scripts link.
0: Your voice is beautiful.
1: I hurt myself today. To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real What have I become?
0: What the fuck am I watching?